This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Happy Thursday to you. Dr. Matt here along with Jeff and Terry. And, uh, you know, our thoughts go out to all those uh, that are trying to unbury their lives in the Northeast. Or floating away in the California. Or floating away in the California. My in laws are Weather. in New York City right now. They are keep they really? sending us some crazy pictures. It's it's weather. It's almost like I don't know. Like the climate's changing. Hmm. It's the strangest thing. So to speak. Yeah, so to speak. Uh incredible storms. Uh Across the country, really, and uh, yet it just drizzles here in in the Rocky Mountain area. Yeah, can't we have some of this snow? It's a I little know. selfish. Our ski resorts would love this. Ugh. We have a lot of styrofoam. We're okay. Robert Redford is just dying up there in Park City. Yeah, or Sundance. Yeah, um, lots to cover, boy. Some of it we the one. <laughs> some of it we don't even want to get into. Um, anyway, I have to do a lot of editing. I know you do. There's just stories where you're like, nope, nope, not not going to do that one. No, I'm tired of that one. Yeah, alleged relationships with the president. There's all kinds of stuff Can't with go near uh, that. Kushner, Jared Kushner's being investigated by the state of New York for, I, I guess, being a form of a slumlord, I guess. I'm not sure. Really? He's skirting regulations, and he says he didn't do it, but there's all this evidence that he did. It doesn't matter. Does it matter? Until they, you yeah, know, it matters if you live in one of his buildings. It's yeah. a horrible thing. Okay, well, we'll be getting to some of those headlines uh, that will be incredibly well edited by Terry. (laughs) We'll also be talking today about uh, schools. Should they wait for red flags before they try to address some of the students' uh, mental health needs? Kids are suffering in school, and now we see what kids can do uh, when they are suffering. um, And we've got to figure out a way to jump on that a little bit earlier. So we'll get to that in a bit. But before we do, back to the headlines with Terry that will, again, be very cleanly edited. On Wednesday, congressional negotiators finalized a $1.3 trillion budget bill that must be passed by both the House and the Senate by midnight Friday in order to avoid a government shutdown. The 2,232-page bill was released in the evening. The House House Speaker Paul Ryan said no bill of this size is perfect, but this legislation addresses important priorities and makes us stronger at home and abroad. He also scrambled over to the White House to convince the president of this. Okay. Because the bill increases military and domestic spending, but does not give the president all of the money he wants to build a wall along the border. It Mm. also doesn't give any protections for the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrival recipients. It also allows for U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention to conduct research on gun violence but not advocacy. Okay. So they can research it, but they can't come out and, like, support the findings? Yeah, you, I guess I'm you can't. I'm not sure what that don't means. Say, don't say what you learned. So, yeah, Paul Ryan had to go and... And he scrambled convince. is the words yes. used, which makes you wonder, like, what does that look like? Um, <laughs> the cartoon characters, when they start running and it just yeah. looks like walk, a, walk, a blur walk. wheel. Yeah. With the, that's kind of what I see with Paul Ryan. There that's you go. It. Uh, the suspected Austin bomber left a twenty-three, a twenty-five-minute confession recording on the on his phone. The police said, Brian Manley, the acting chief of the Austin Police Department, said the suspected uh, bomber described in detail how he built the bombs. Uh, apparently, he went to Home Depot. Uh, it is the outcry. That's uh, did you read that story at no. all? They went into several big box like uh, home improvement type stores because the bombs were made out of. Uh, 
like some uh, just piping and then I think some PVC piping yeah. and it looked like things you could just get at your local home improvement store. So the police went to several in the area and went through receipts until they found a credit card that sort of matched in several oh, places wow. and then tracked it that way. Cops are good. They just did some really in-depth, probably monotonous work to yeah. be able to find where they this They say guy- he was a troubled, troubled teen. So the police said the bomber blew himself up Wednesday morning, 19 days after he allegedly began the bombing spree across the city. The targets were at random. There's no connection with these okay. people. It was just random. Just putting it out there. Two people uh, were killed, four others injured in the five bombings. In the uh, description, there was no like political angle. It wasn't a They hate don't know thing. the motive. They're saying he might have just been depressed and angry, and this wow. is how he dealt with it. He was fired from a job recently. Life wasn't going the way he wanted to. And he kind of described as much in the video, just nothing specific as this is what I did this. So they, they initially thought it was uh, racially motivated, but now they really don't know. They don't No. They just they think it was pretty random. Yeah. Except I don't know how you randomly – you just take a map and start pointing at houses and all like that. Or like I mean where you could get away easily. Yeah. Maybe that was it. Hmm. Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg spoke with four media outlets on Wednesday. He did a TV interview with CNN. He sat down with the New York Times, uh, Wired, and Recode. Uh, He opened the door to testifying before Congress, discussed potential regulations, and said Facebook is taking election meddling extremely seriously. In the Recode interview, Zuckerberg reiterated his concern about having too much of his own personal ideology influencing Facebook's rules and regulations. He said, what I would really like to do is find a way to get our policy set in a way that reflects the values of the community so I am not the one making those decisions. I feel fundamentally uncomfortable sitting here in California in an office making content policy decisions for people around the world. Hmm. And I think people around the world are a little uncomfortable with him sitting there doing that. (laughs) We totally agree. It's a guy who made a program in his dorm room, is now running a billion-dollar company, and they haven't really adjusted their rules as they've grown, and that's coming back to haunt them. A lot of this stuff happened five years ago, and they've changed the rules since then, but all that data is still out there, and that's coming back. But this this is also a company that really is kind of like a country. Yes, in many ways. So in a way, it's like normally you'd have a government agency that would manage this but right. it's a company and so he's the leader of the company he opened the door to regulation with those comments he doesn't feel comfortable making those decisions but at the same time they're not committing to regulation either right so well and how do you have like the u.s government regulate when really this is bigger than the u.s too facebook is right. a global entity so i guess the u.s could Regulate it glo- you, uh, locally. The European Union has a package of regulations going through that deal with uh, the right to be forgotten. So you can go to Facebook and say, completely erase me. And so they're putting those rules into effect. Maybe just each individual country just has their own rules and Facebook has to deal with it that wow. way. You don't have wow. a universal set. Yeah. You have each country deal with it. At least he's open enough to recognize he's in over his head on that. Right. That's good. It just took him... 72 hours to figure out what well, to say. Well, and, and a market cap loss of 30-something billion. Yeah, it's just crazy numbers. Finally, uh, do you dread walking into a store only to have some chipper salesperson pop out of nowhere and ask you, do you need help finding anything? Yes, that bugs me. You're not alone. Uh, this is according to Rack.com. It's a uh, consumer like clothing-type website. So they uh-huh. did a, a poll. This they, is probably Nordstrom Rack, I'm guessing. No. Maybe? Oh, it's not. They, 
No, not at all. Oh. It's the other they, rack. Okay. They did polling on uh, you know customers and their interaction with uh, people that work at the store. Studying ninety five percent of people want to be left alone in stores. Uh, according to the uh, 2,900 North American shoppers that were surveyed, customers seem to pr- uh, prefer to be the ones to make the first move. In another study in 2014 by University of Pennsylvania, uh, they found that 50% of potential customers will still seek out an employee for advice or questions while shopping. So even though we don't want to be taught, you know, we don't yeah. want to be engaged, we will go find somebody if we don't need them. Don't pressure me. Uh, still, if there is an alternative to interaction, people still prefer it. The study found that 85% of people would rather use a scanner to find the price of an item than, than be forced to find a human. Isn't what's happening to us? We don't want to talk to people. We don't want to be part of society. And I think stores are one of the few things that are left that are telling us that, no, you're still a part of society. So if you go into a store, you need to talk to somebody. Eh, just give me the scanner. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've done that. I like to go in with my headset on. Just don't keep your head down. Really? Yeah. You put in earphones and you, you, wow. Yeah. I didn't know you were one of those people. Yeah, I'm one of those. Okay. And then I am, I'm also the one that, you know, tries on clothes in the middle of the aisle. (laughs) I'll just put the shirt on, yeah. (laughs) Take my shirt off. Well, I always go to the self-check. Yeah. Because it's really not that big of an interaction, right? It's pretty easy. Well, plus you're looking for a second job. Just trying to get out the door. Practice a little uh, shopping (laughs) cart I'm testing out a career, Matt. Come on. It's good. Well, all right. Come on, people. We're becoming antisocial, even as we shop. Hey, up next, we're going to be talking about whether schools should wait for red flags uh, to address student mental health needs. Should we be waiting till we see problems, or should we proactively go be assessing our kids to see if they do have some mental health issues? Interesting uh, insight. Up next, this is the Matt Townsend Show. One out of every four or five students will display a significant mental health problem over the course of their lifetime, and those students can be identified early with considerable accuracy if educators are given the right training and tools. Unfortunately, most schools rely on reactive methods, like office uh, discipline referrals, you know, the, the, the bully being sent to the office to figure out which students need behavioral and mental health needs. Should schools stop waiting for red flags and be more proactive in identifying uh, children and um, students that have mental health issues? Well, here to talk about it is uh, our guest, Dr. Nathaniel Vonderems joins us. And uh, Dr. Vonderems is an assistant professor of school psychology at the University of South Florida and the co-chair of the National Association of School Psychologists, Government and Professional Relations Work Group. Uh, Nathan, thank or actually we'll call you Nate. Nate, thanks for being with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is a boy. Couldn't be perf- better timing um, for, for you to be on the show. Uh, so I guess here's our dilemma. We have... We have kids in school situations, 20% of them will have anxiety, depression, or other mental health issues, and, um, you know, those can lead to bigger and bigger problems we're seeing in our communities. Um, And one of the things that uh, you've written about and and research and talk about a lot is the fact that there are proactive methods to evaluate students, um, but most schools tend to be fairly reactive 
to mental health issues. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you think about a typical school, in schools we do screenings for early reading. We do we do screenings for health issues such as uh, eyesight and hearing, and yet we don't often look for mental and behavioral health problems until it's too late. Uh, a typical school will use office discipline referrals or then wait till a kid needs to be suspended or expo- or expelled before we really know that a bigger problem is going on. It's funny, and there's. it seems like the students know, um, with the shooting in Florida, for example, people knew about the, the, the issues with this boy that, that ended up being the shooter. S- teachers know, students know, a lot of people know, except um, I guess there's, is there just no formal method to do something about it? Yeah, I think uh, over the last number of years, we really worked to develop tools that are more responsive and accurate in detecting risk. But I do want to make clear that we have no tool that can be 100% accurate in predicting violent or suicidal behavior. And so I think that's an important distinction to draw. Rather, what we're trying to do with universal screening, for example, is to take the temperature before surgery is needed. Mm. And you've invented or, or, or created and then and designed and then tested uh, pre-screening tools. Talk about talk about how your tool works, um, and and really how how it's really actually becoming fairly popular, and more and more schools are now adopting it. Yeah. So, for example, we started with our tool about four and a half years ago now, in two rural elementary schools in North Carolina, and it's now been administered over two million times across twenty eight states. So, we've seen a tremendous uptick in the growth of the tool. And what it is, is it measures the pre-symptomology of mental and behavioral health risk. And so what that means is these early indicators of something, of some severe problem behavior that might happen later in in the year or even in the academic career. So it's a brief tool. It's a 19-item tool that a teacher completes, at least within the elementary school. It takes about 30 seconds to complete per student. Now, later in middle school or high school, we have student self-report versions. So the student's the one reporting. And I think that's really important, especially when we're talking about internalizing types of issues, depression, anxiety, withdrawal, that are not easily observable by that classroom teacher. And so the tool is quick, it's efficient, and it gives you data that suggests not only if a student's at risk or not, but what kind of risk. And that data is really important to help guide that early intervention to prevent long-term problems. Mm. It really um, sounds it's, it sounds doable. I was thinking that this would just demand a lot more in resources, and but really it's it's probably a little training on the teacher's part, and then an administration of the teacher's test, uh, and then is every child then retested as they go into like middle school? Yeah. So actually, with a screening instrument, you want to do that three times per year. And importantly, this gives you that overall snapshot of what's going on in your schools. A lot of times I'll work with teachers and and they might say, yeah, fifth grade, yeah, it's a really tough grade this year. And while screening helps to give some more data to to reaffirm those uh, assertions. And for a school, that might mean directing more resources towards fifth grade. Or maybe within a particular classroom, that might be directing resources towards, um, for one of the schools I work with, for example, uh, the eighth grade girls had a, a lot of emotional uh, challenges. And so 
for the school, it helps to redirect and target limited resources to, to help those kids earlier. Yeah, I have uh, some teachers in my family. My wife was uh, trained as a teacher, and I could I can almost hear the teacher saying, oh, one more thing to do. But a lot of these teachers, all they, they already do it just out of the goodness of their heart. They're evaluating their kids, and they're trying to help them any way they can. And this you're just saying this would just be a, a more formal way um, to assess. Yeah, absolutely. And the last thing a teacher wants to do is one more assessment, right? Right. And so it has to be a value proposition where we're identifying barriers to learning. And the quicker that we can do that and the way that we can use this to start a conversation to get early intervention quicker, the better that is for both the student and the teacher. Hmm. It seems like once what, what we would run into is once we've evaluated and identified certain people that might have some barriers or mental health issues, then we need school psychologists. And isn't there a a, a pretty major shortage of psychologists? We just don't have the money to put as many psychologists in school as we need. Yeah, for sure. I I would love to say that we can have the ability to have a school psychologist for, for every school, but Many schools are, are facing those shortages when you see one school psychologist for every 1,500 or even 2,000 students. Yeah. So I think that underscores the importance for a comprehensive um, wraparound services that, that kids need. So bringing in the school psychologist, bringing in the school social worker, a school counselor, and having communication amongst mental and behavioral health professionals in the school in terms of how do we meet these kids. But ultimately, we're never going to have enough personnel or money for that one-to-one service for every kid in need. And so that's why it really underscores the importance of screening so that we can put prevention universal programming in place so that we can reduce the, reduce the overall numbers. Yeah, it's, um, it, it really it's, it goes back to that, that constant battle uh, between funding and uh, where we put the money. But then when we have a disaster and a tragedy like we saw with um, – the, the shooting in, in Florida, we, we also start to realize that we've got to have more complex solutions. Again, we're speaking with Dr. Nathaniel Vonderems, who is an assistant professor at the School of Psychology at the University of South Florida, and he's helping us understand that there are assessments, there are ways that we can proactively evaluate and assess a person's mental health um, on a regular basis throughout our school system without it being uh, undue, I guess, an undue pressure or an undue burden on the teachers. Talk about what you've seen as, you, as you've seen now 26 or so states using your tool. What, what kind of, uh, what kind of um, impact has it made? What are you seeing? What are some stories coming out of the work you've been doing? Yeah, so I've been working with some of the biggest school districts in the country, and what we've seen on the ground when I'm out in the school district training teachers how to do this is that they're consistently reporting that they're not relying necessarily on discipline referrals anymore and having to kick kids out of their classroom, but rather when when they're able to do that screening, they're using this data to communicate to their school teams of the type of intervention, the type of help that they need in that particular classroom. Um, I, I spoke earlier about the need for, you know, in one elementary or one middle school, rather, that the eighth grade girls were having a lot of emotional issues. Well, another early elementary school, we noticed quite a bit of aggressive behavior. And so for that school in particular, it was some social skills training and some anger control and relaxation training. But those 
decisions wouldn't be possible if we're only, you know, if we're only relying on the the kids that are out of seat, the kids that are talking out of turn. I can work, walk into any elementary school in the United States and identify those kids within the first 10 seconds. However, it's those kids that have the withdrawal, the social isolation, and the anxiety. Those are the ones that are typically not being served. And so having that more comprehensive snapshot and working with a number of schools, they've been able to triage their services so much earlier, and it leads to greater efficiency uh, with those limited resources. It really is powerful, the, um, the idea that you could really more fine-tune the services you're delivering and triage uh, each group. Do you notice that is it does do certain problems tend to become like systemic, like school wide, or do, do they tend to stay fairly focused to just certain classrooms, or does it go by grade that they would need to do these interventions? Yeah, so I, each, each school, of course, is unique in its own right in the community and population that it serves. Um, however, when, when doing a universal screening, schools oftentimes will look at the data and say, let's say for one of the um, urban schools that I work with, almost 60 to 70% of kids came up at risk. Well, in a typical school, you can't pull out 60% of kids for some kind of uh, external group, uh, whether it be relaxation or anger, anger control training, but rather we need to do something at the class level. So how do we support that teacher to make that classroom environment uh, more conducive to learning, to reduce some of the triggers that kids might experience that leads to some of these behavioral problems. And so that's just one example of kind of like how a school might shift that resources to the teacher level rather than maybe some of the individual student level. Whereas other schools are implementing things like social-emotional learning, uh, a second-step curricula, culturally responsive schools, or even trauma-informed practices. And these kinds of decisions are made based upon the nature of the need um, exhibited both within the classroom but across the school as a whole. Mm. Boy, it, it really, to be able to target it uh, would be such an would, would be such a help. I look at it almost like, you know, it's it's Sunday dinner. You've got a lot of pots boiling. You got something in the oven. You've got all these things going on, at, but you need to kind of know when to turn one up, when to turn one down, when to move one off the burner. It's because these things can be volatile with one class having trouble or entire grades having trouble, urban versus rural issues. It's a pretty big deal. Have you had any pushback um, from people that feel like, uh, you know, that they we eventually put some of these kids on a list They're Now they're listed. They're targeted They're You know, it's like being on the terrorist list in school because you you're you're constantly being seen on that assessment as somebody that that has potential problems. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And I think another question that I often get is the, the issue around parental consent and kind of how are we using these uh, assessments to guide services. And I think importantly, when we're doing universal screening, we're not diagnosing. Hmm. We're not having a psychologist get out of DSM and, and look up a diagnostic code for a mental health issue. No, rather, if you continue the analogy about taking the temperature, we're getting idea, a quick idea of something that might or might not be going on and what's, what is the nature of that issue. And so importantly, when a school is starting to screen, there has to be some intervention, interventions in place that are available to all students. So these aren't specialized pull-out services or referrals to outside clinicians. Rather, this is a way to guide those decisions in the school setting. Hmm. And so these are observable uh, behaviors that can be identified with the screening instrument. So 
when we're talking about you know how to provide those services, it's important to be able to have that conversation with the school team that you must screen to intervene. Yeah. Now that sounds um, it sounds so important. I also uh, again we're already doing this right for learning disabilities, for health issues, for for other uh, you know things. We're already screening our kids to screen to intervene and know how to handle it. So uh, this doesn't seem like a, a, a bridge too far. This seems like something that everyone could be implementing. What would you suggest to the rest of us, Nate, as parents who? who, you know, are, are for this idea, and how would we be able to get our school more involved? Yeah, I think the first conversation that you have with the school is how are they currently addressing um, mental health and behavioral health issues? Um, you know, many schools will have a disciplinary plan in place. Some schools uh, implement positive behavior interventions and supports, which is a more uh, tiered approach or public health approach to addressing behavioral issues. And then ultimately... You know, where are the gaps within that system, right? If we have uh, universal curriculum in place, well, how do we know if it works? You know, what kind of indicators are, are relative to the effectiveness of a particular programming? So you see, uh, you know, within our reading curriculum, well, we have early reading assessments to give us an idea if the curriculum works and if a student is making adequate progress. Well, we need to be doing the same thing for emotional behavioral health. And so the questions that a parent might ask is, well, how is this school addressing the emotional and behavioral health needs of my students, that all students, I'm a parent myself, that all students need? And so it's important to have that conversation first of, you know, what are the existing practices and policies uh, that are in place or, or maybe not in place at that school? And then ultimately, how do we make that next step, a more individualized uh, service delivery? And so for many schools, school psychologists, uh, principals, uh, special education leaders, it's then finding tools that are going to meet those needs to help guide those conversations. Schools are, are doing this anyways. You know, universal screening is just one way to help improve that process. I mean, we put so much on teachers today that they're balancing so many things within the classroom. This is just one way to really help improve and, and make that process much more efficient. Absolutely. Nate Vonderems, thank you so much for your insight uh, and just just giving us all a taste of what this universal screening would look like with our kids. Why not? Why wouldn't we do what we can to to make our teaching more effective, more targeted, to have this triage method um, for mental health for our kids? It seems really like a no brainer that we could we can find out earlier how to intervene, how to help, and how to lift our kids to a higher level. Again, Dr. Nathan Vonderems is a, an assistant professor at the school at at the University of South Florida and uh, doing what he can to take on the battle. Mental health in our schools will continue the journey straight ahead. Do a little Coach's Corner with you. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. I'm ready to go in, Coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! You know, uh, as we as we talk about anything on the show, we we uh, our goal is to influence you, right? To to hopefully give you some ideas, some tools, some real life solutions. And part of the coach's corner, our goal is to give you some some takeaway, something you can go and do. As we were talking with, should we you know wait for red flags to address student mental health issues? Should we wait till there's a shooting? Should we wait till we can all react? Um, 
no, right? So one of the ideas I wanted to talk about in the coach's corner was the idea of proactive versus reactive and um, and reactivity. And uh, the, the problem is it's there's just so much going on. We don't pay attention to everything. We, we can't feasibly pay attention to everything. Except, again, once we have a shooting or we have an event that we can all react to, then we start really mobilizing all of the forces. And, uh, you know, it turns into discussions of gun legislation. It turns into, um, you know, movements. The kids get out of school to go fight uh, the issue. One of the solutions that uh, our last guest, Nate, brought to us is the fact that there are ways to understand very quickly the mental health needs of students and um, to assess those needs, to see if they have the potential of, of having um, some problems coming up simply because of what's going on in their lifestyle, in their home, in their in – their, are they treated pro- properly and appropriately? Do they tend to be bullied? Other issues that can, can come up in these evaluations. And the – the idea that we we don't have time for it or we have other rights that would forbid us from a teacher doing such a quick triage, remember, they're already doing it. They're already making these assessments. They're already questioning it as a parent or as a teacher who's trying to do the best they can with their students anyway. And it's just more additive. But the idea that we could proactively start impacting the mental health issues and needs of our kids before they turn into full-fledged fights and arguments and, you know, a beatdown on the playground would be really valuable, wouldn't it? And wouldn't that actually help our psychologists in schools also know how to to triage and, and who to work with? And couldn't we take certain groups of these kids and actually teach them other healthy, meaningful ways to manage anxiety? and uh, meaningful ways to, to evaluate their depression and and have other assessments or have other people, other resources from the community come in. It's, it's powerful. Anytime you can do it proactively. Now, one of the things that I learned um, when I was working with uh, Franklin Covey and, and Stephen Covey from the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People is the idea of the definition of proactive versus reactive. Proactivity means you make decisions based on your values and your principles. Reactivity means you make the decisions based on mood, situation, or circumstance. And wouldn't it be powerful if we had some time to be more proactive in the making of our choices of our in our educational system, in the protection of our kids, instead of constantly doing it reactively out of our mood, our situation, or that circumstance? The minute we are always following... Um, the lead of a problem, uh, it seems like we're already behind the gun, literally, right? We're already behind the problem. And then it becomes more of a reactive decision, and then your reaction drives my reaction, and it becomes a, a reactive, chaotic environment versus choosing ahead of time. What do we know causes some of these issues with uh, violence in our schools? We know mental health is one of the issues, Right. We know that there's a parenting side to this. We know that many, if the majority, minus one of the school shootings recently, were fatherless children. Their fathers weren't around. Uh, that would probably be an indicator, I'm betting, on one, of the, on one of the assessments that our last guest was talking about. 
We know that uh, access to weapons or guns is another issue. We know that um, just pressure from the community and schools. We know bullying is another issue. So there is a lot. We can't just expect teachers to do everything, that we can be more proactive as parents in setting up these opportunities. And I'm telling you, proactive is is the way, especially when we now know that there's teachers, there's everybody knows that that there are people that are desperately in need of help. So we also need some laws that make it a little easier to uh, to help those people that don't even know they need it. Now, speaking of proactivity, this is why I wanted to jump on that idea. Uh, there is a great example of proactivity who is a, from a gas station clerk, listen to this, that tracks down a customer who lost a lottery ticket. Now, after a man accidentally dropped a lottery ticket that was worth $1 million, he won. It was worth $1 million in a Salina, Kansas gas station. The employee ensured that the winning ticket made it back to the right guy. The ticket was actually purchased in Lincoln, Kansas. But while stopped at a Salina gas station, the winner's brother held the ticket in his hand. Then he dropped it. After spotting it, when the brothers were gone, employees picked up the ticket, scanned it, discovering it was worth $1 million. It wasn't signed, though, and so any one of the employees could have claimed it as their own. But they waited to see if the men would return, and when they came back a few hours later, the ticket was turned over to the rightful owner. The winner asked to stay anonymous, and the Kansas Lottery has not revealed the name of the Salina gas station where the ticket was lost. It's just nice to know where you still see Good Samaritans out there, right? So proactivity, looking for the guy, tracking down the guy, doing what you can to live according to your value system. There are people out there doing it. There are people trying it. Our teachers are trying it. Our police officers are trying it. And um, we all need to be trying it. So ask yourself, where do you need a little more proactivity in your life? Where do you need to to actually proactively start working on something instead of constantly reacting to it the rest of your days? And hopefully you can just make a little progress on it. You don't need to fix the issue perfectly, but you can find one little solution to start uh, improving it today. We are going to uh, continue the journey. More fun straight ahead. We're going to be revisiting an interview about getting past self-pity. How do you get over, you know, your pity party? This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Amy Morin is a licensed clinical social worker, psychotherapist, college psychology instructor, and internationally recognized expert on mental strength. And she says that mentally strong people refuse to allow self-pity to sabotage their goals. Instead, they use life's inevitable hardships as a way to grow stronger and become better. She joined us a while back on the show and shared some tips with us about how to avoid the trap of self-pity. I began the interview by asking, what is wrong with having a little self-pity party? That's just it. I think, you know, a lot of times we like to indulge ourselves in a pity party, but it, it holds us back. The more you spend time you spend hosting your pity party, the less time you spend fixing your problem. And even when you can't fix the problem, you can at least change your attitude or go out and make your life a little bit better. That's true. I mean, I guess it's just what are you going to spend your time on, huh? Just right. wallowing or, you know, moving on. Exactly. And when you wallow, it, it doesn't do you, you or anybody else around you any good, and it doesn't improve your circumstance. 
That's a, it's really a, and especially because you can be justified to have a pity party. I mean, well, yeah, so-and-so was just, uh, you know, lost their job and I haven't been able to work because of my health. You could fall into that pity party and everyone would agree you should feel sad, except it doesn't change your situation. It just keeps you feeling sad. Right. And I think that's an important distinction. It's always interesting to me when I talk about this subject is people sort of have this line that they draw about when it becomes acceptable to to throw a pity party. So yeah. for some people it is, you know, when you're um, stuck in financial problems and, and it's not your fault. Well, then, yes, then you can host a pity party. <laughs> but in reality, you know, that there's a big difference. Of course, you're going to be sad when bad things happen in life. But there's a big difference between feeling sad and wallowing in self-pity. Wallowing in self-pity is what keeps you stuck rather than just being sad, where when you have these normal emotions as far as feeling sad, feeling hurt, feeling angry, whatever it might be, you can still face those emotions and move forward, but wallowing is really about staying stuck. Isn't that funny? And, and again, you the minute you're really good at recognizing and, and actually enjoying how jacked up your life is, and, and it's it's a good thing for you, I, you're, you're probably totally upside down, aren't you? You're just you're you're, you're paddling the wrong way. Yes, absolutely. It's sad. It's so sad. But we do it, and I see it all the time. I mean, I, you know, there's people that just they love telling you the sad story, the sob story. But yeah, like you said, it doesn't change anything. You say that there's nine ways that mentally strong people prevent self pity from kind of taking over their world. Uh, talk to us. One of the first ones you mentioned is. Mentally strong people face their feelings. What do you mean by that? Yeah, you know, oddly, self-pity is often a way to avoid confronting your feelings. So somebody who feels sorry for themselves doesn't really want to go straight through this hurt and anger and sadness. So sort of to like skirt around the issue, they're like, oh, I just won't leave the house for four days because I don't want to go out and see people. Or or rather than working on the on the problem, they want to call everybody they know to invite them to their pity party by saying, gosh, can you believe this happened to me? <laughs> And and it's really a way to sort of get around your emotions and rather than facing them head on, sometimes you just have to say, yeah, this is sad and allow yourself to, to feel that or allow yourself to go through grief head on. And, and that's uncomfortable and nobody likes to do that, but it's better than sitting around thinking about, you know, how horrible your life is and, and sort of magnifying all of your misfortunes. Well, and you, because it is a downward spiral like you talk about, but you also then suggest healthy people, you know, mentally stronger people, um, they recognize the warning signs of the downward spiral they're in. They actually see it real time. Yeah, there's a big link, obviously, between how we feel, what we think about, and how we behave. And those three things are all intertwined. So when you start thinking, you know, that my life shouldn't shouldn't be like this or I shouldn't have to deal with these problems it causes you to feel bad. And the worse you feel, the less likely you are to get up and get active and, and work towards a solution. So true. I mean, it, it's it's self-awareness. A lot of this is just recognizing what's going on, but also, I guess, being able to question how you're seeing the problem too, huh? Yeah, because, you know, when we're stuck in self-pity, we exaggerate things. And we think, you know, nobody else ever has to deal with problems as big as mine, or you start to think, you know, my my life is worse than everyone else's. Well, those things aren't true. <laughs> and sometimes to really get a hold of yourself, you have to stop and think, well, is my life really that bad? 
chances are maybe you've gone through some rough times, but, gee, compare yourself to people on the other side of the earth, and pretty quickly you can see that your life's yeah. not that bad. I mean, even in the worst-case scenario, I see it with my clients, um, like a divorce. They're going through a divorce. They found out their partner's been cheating on them, and they're going through divorce. Um Okay. Okay. We'll feel that. That's good. Go feel it. Go through your emotion. Go through the grieving process. But there comes a point where, like, I look at. I had a, a recently. I had a client that's. She's still gonna. She's still got an education. She has uh, incredible talents and gifts. She already. She's going. She's set up basically for life financially. And I sit there and compare her to other clients, and I think, oh wow. You have no idea. I mean, imagine if you were in this situation losing everything and having no money, and yet you can't – I can't convince someone of that. They That's why they need to be mentally strong, right? Because I can't just sit there and try to talk them into being healthy. Right. Often we compare ourselves to people who are better off. We look around and think, you know, all these other people, their lives are so much easier. Well, just look the other direction and you'll see that there's plenty of people who are, have way tougher circumstances than you do. Yeah. So when we hear people complain about, you know, I'm so busy and I've got 12 loads of laundry to do and then I have to go grocery shopping. Well, just think about that statement alone. You have to do your loads of laundry. Well, at least you have running water. Yeah. <laughs> or you have to go grocery shopping. You get to go to the store and buy food and you have money, you know? Yeah, no, totally. <laughs> it's really not the end of the world. <laughs> well, yeah, but yeah, well, you just, yeah, you don't understand. You're like, okay, right. And again, that's why it's so powerful because I can't – this has to be something we have to choose to do to be able to turn a negative thought – you call it into a behavioral experiment. What do you mean by that? Well, because, you know, sometimes we'll we'll think those things like, you know, I I can't ever go out and get a new job. Nobody will ever hire me. Well, you won't know until you try. But sometimes self-pity keeps us just sitting on the couch thinking nothing good will ever happen. Well – and then that can affect your behavior. But unless you go out there and challenge some of those negative thoughts, you'll never know. And so I run into a lot of people in my therapy office as well who will say, well, you know, I could never get a new job or I could never go out and get married again because I'll never meet anybody. Well, no, you won't meet anybody if you're sitting on your couch or no, nobody's uh, company's not going to call you and offer you a job when you, you haven't even gone out and applied. You have yeah. to go out and and do those things to make it happen. <laughs> it's so true. I was sitting in an activity or a speech I was about to give in front of, I don't know, like a thousand um, singles. And a woman came up to me that I had met before, uh, and she said, oh, look out there, Matt. Look at that group. And I'm like, yeah. And she says, they're pitiful. There's not mm-hmm. one person in that group that is marriageable. Not one person in that group that's marriageable. And I'm And I'm sitting here trying to go find a husband in that group. And I, I, look, I, look, I was like, what are you saying? And I said, I go, you know what is so amazing? Um, you are the, you're the second person to tell me that. And the other was a man that was looking right at your group of friends and said, look at that group. <laughs> and she's like, really? And I'm like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Yep, it's all in our head. <laughs> there's, nobody, right. there's nobody good enough to marry. And every, if everybody in the room is thinking that, then I guess you're right. There is nobody in that right. group to marry. But it's it's all about the mental, isn't it? It's about the psychological. But I love that you turn it into an activity, a behavior. Take your negative yeah. perception and go do something about it. Turn it into an act. 
Right, because I find that people who feel sorry for themselves, they really end up living this sort of really pitiful life after a while. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that people will say, you know, well, I don't have any friends and nobody likes me. Well, when's the last time you went out and did something nice for somebody or the last time you went to a party and spoke to people rather than just sat in the corner and sulked? Or what steps can you take to, to make your life a little bit better? That is uh, the key, right? Again, uh, Amy Morin, who is a clinical psychologist, all of us could fall into a pity party. I mean, Jeff and I, we fall into pity parties about every five minutes. Oh, yeah, for sure. In fact, on my way back into the studio, I was just thinking, I'm so tired. I'm never going to get any sleep. Yeah. No, you actually, you weren't thinking that. You said that. Yeah. Right when you walked in, you said that. I, I didn't know I said that out loud. Oh, no. That's, it was how, out, it was that's how tired I am. Well, and that's also how pitiful that is. <laughs> so get over your pity party, right? Not you, Jeff. So I can keep eating this ice cream then? Yeah. Okay. No. No, you can't. What? It's going to go right to your hips. Um, so we've all got it. It's easy. It's easy to just start complaining. It's easy to play the martyr. It's easy to get into the pity party. But in the end, you got to do something about it, right? So make a change. Make a change. Change your life. Change your schedule. Change your diet. Change your something. Or just keep being the victim of life. Don't try to get attention by being more pitiful than everyone else. Or you're going to start to create problems for yourself. Anyway, just a little advice from the Matt Townsend Show. Again, we're doing what we can to help you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier lives. We'll have more fun next hour. This is uh, our goal to make your life better. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Happy Thursday to you. Dr. Matt here along with Jeff and Terry. And, of course, uh, worried about uh, the Nor'easter and the people in the Northeast digging out. Digging out multiple, like, 8 to 10 inches in uh, New York. But luckily, they're going to have warmer temperatures today, so it'll heat up, and all that water will just flow down into the sewers of New York. Oh, nice. And then it will freeze. Yeah. You know, the unfair thing about living in New York is that you get these severe weather storms, and nothing gets canceled. They don't say, well, we're not doing work, we're not doing school today. But if this were, say, Seattle... And there was just like there were snowflakes in the air. They would cancel everything. You got to shut down everything. Yeah. Well, think about it. It's slippery, and they have really, really steep hills and streets in Seattle. Yeah, they're just not equipped for that type of weather. And and San Francisco could be just devastated by a storm like this. It's Um, not going to snow in San Francisco. It could. Uh, anywho, um, but it does shut down the government, but it didn't shut down the government. They were still able to push a, a bill through. Yes. So let's get to the headlines with Terry. Terry, what uh, what did get pushed through last night? Congress has agreed on a massive $1.3 trillion spending bill known as the Omnibus Bill, including modest gun control measures aimed at improving background checks. The legislation includes... It's called Fix NICS. No, it's not NCIS like the TV show. Fix NICS. NICS. A bill that provides incentives for states to submit information to the FBI's National Instant Criminal Background Check System. 
Wow. So now they have to incentivize states to participate in the background check system so that there's a universal system where we can check and go, mm, maybe you don't get a gun. Maybe okay. you're not the kind of person, you know what I mean? Maybe yeah. you've done things, maybe there's something in your past. So it's got, there's a solution, it's just now they've got to get every state to buy into it. Is it gift cards? How do you incentivize the states? What do you give them? Uh, apparently just a cupcake, because that's all Jeff needs. Oh, that's all I need. You can get a Snuggie, because there's that refund you can get on the Snuggie of 30 bucks. I'll take you. a Snuggie, yeah. too. No, you know, sn- <laughs> you Snuggie guys- has a completely different yeah. connotation for me. Another, <sighs> another measure in the uh, legislation would allow the Centers for Disease control to conduct research on the cause of gun violence, which was previously banned. The provisions comes a month after the deadly shooting of Parkland, Florida. Yeah. Lawmakers are expected to vote on the legislation this week. If they don't pass it by Friday night, the government shuts down. So, Eat a cupcake in a Snuggie and I, I defy you. I, I, I dare you to complain about that. Oh, I wouldn't complain about cupcake it. Cupcake in a Snuggie. It just wouldn't motivate me. And then fall asleep. The, the sleep would motivate me. But I don't need a cupcake and a Snuggie to fall asleep. In the trillion-dollar bill, it adds uh, money for defense. It also doesn't add any money for the wall. Those are some of the bigger okay. highlights, so, I guess you could well, say. The, so will the president sign it if it didn't have enough money for uh, the wall? As we, we've talked about previously, Paul Ryan scrambled from the his offices over to the White House to uh, make sure that happened. Yeah. And Trump was on board on a tweet this morning. At the end of it, he said they had to give up some useless money to make sure the Democrats. We are have happy. audio of Paul Ryan scrambling oh. to the White House. There you go. There it is. There it is. The family of the Austin bombing suspect who died early Wednesday after he blew himself up in his car said they are devastated and broken by what happened and had no idea of the darkness that he must have been in. Two of the bomber's roommates were detained and questioned. The police say it's possible he planted or mailed other packages before he died. As of yesterday, I saw that they were leaning towards that he didn't. Oh, really? But they can't be 100% sure. Right, yeah. but they're saying it seems like this was it. They, they've been in his the, his uh, his room, and they they looked around where he lived, and they kind of came to the opinion that maybe he didn't mail anymore. But they're not going to go out. And well, I thought in his video he admitted to seven bombs. Huh. So we'll see what happens. Wow. According to records, the Austin bomber was homeschooled and fired last year from his job at a manufacturing company. And one of his former friends told the L.A. Times that a lot of people jump to conclusions and want to make him out to be a conservative terrorist. But I think it has more to do with loneliness and anger than it has to do with anything else. Yeah, that'll do it. Other news, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg responded to the growing Cambridge Analytica scandal in a lengthy Facebook post Wednesday outlining a plan to avoid a similar breach in the future. Zuckerberg described the timeline of events that led up to what he called the breach of trust, in which the data analytics firm reportedly accessed private information from tens of millions of users without permission. The Facebook co-founder said that many measures were already in place to prevent such an issue, but introduced a three-pronged plan for the future. Three-pronged plan, Matt. Here we go. Three-pronged plan. Investigate all third-party <laughs> apps that log, it, log sensitive data. Further restrict third-party developers from accessing uh, personal information and create a tool for users to e- to easily control which apps they uh, can access profile data. Wow. So they're going to do all that. Okay. Uh, he says, I started Facebook, and at the end of the day, I'm responsible for what happens on our platform. Wrote Zuckerberg, lawmakers are calling for Zuckerberg to testify before the Senate to address privacy and accountability issues for web-based companies. The European Union... Uh, many other countries are also having the same request, so he may be logging some frequent flyer miles, miles as he defends his company. Yeah. 
As he should, because they As he messed up. Absolutely. And again, some are saying he didn't apologize. He did apologize. It's kind it, of a fast, I'm sorry, and then he started to explain yeah, what they're going to do. Which is kind of how they've done this in the past. Yeah. Say three-pronged plan five times real three quick. Three-pronged plan. <laughs> and finally, <laughs> this is a uh, something to save the earth. It's called Operation Hammer. What? Operation Hammer may sound like the villain's master scheme from a James Bond film, but it's actually NASA's plan to deal with asteroids threatening the planet, such as one the size of the Empire State Building that could crash into the planet in 2135. Oi, boy. NASA get ready. Yeah. NASA says the asteroid known as Bennu has a 1 in 2,700 chance or 0.037% chance of striking the Earth in September of that year. While that's, uh. while that's not a very good chance, and then it adds a note here, says, please don't print that an asteroid is going to crash into the Earth, a NASA aerospace <laughs> engineer tells the Washington Post. <laughs> Bennu, isn't that one of those products that uh, helps you with an upset stomach? Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's there's B there's Binu PM, and then there's just just regular Binu, Binu. extra strength Binu. Yeah. So while that's not a very good chance, it hasn't stopped NASA from putting together a contingency plan. They call it the Hypervelocity Asteroid Mitigation Mission for Energy Response or Emergency Response Is or it? Hammer. Ah, yes. Hammer time! It's an acronym, right? It's That's good. Cool. So one possibility is sending a nine-ton spacecraft to smash into the asteroid, redirecting it out of the Earth's orbit. Oh. Right? Yeah. A more likely possibility sees NASA detonating a, a nuclear device on Bennu, Armageddon style. Oh, mm. so but they'd have to have somebody deliver the device. That's right. We need an old astronaut. We need some criminals. Or Pluto. Send Pluto on a suicide mission. How would you get Pluto here? Hmm. Yeah. You, you mean he won't come back through the doors because you've upset him over the years? And he's a he's a dwarf planet. They're hard wow. to get back. This to is Earth. why he won't come on the show anymore. Uh, yeah, what, what they need is a team of like criminals, maybe some uh, oil workers. Don't kind send of a, a, a team up of people who work in, in a kind of drilling operation where they could get deep enough yes. into the asteroid. Yes, they need to have nothing to lose, everything to gain. Yes. Don't send Owen Wilson, because he'll just die before he'll they even die. get there. You know what? It actually sounds like a job for the Kardashians. I I mean... Cause They've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. I don't know if they can drill deep. And and we as a planet and as a, as a people have everything to gain and nothing to lose. Oh, except the Kardashians. Well, that's what I mean. If, if, if they disappear, it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> Well, I guess we tried. We did everything mm. we could. Appar- uh, uh, the final thing here. However, there is no current plan for Hammer to become a reality. Oh. Oh, so it's, it's not. T- it's 2135. Come on, people. We have to get to Mars first. By the way, thanks for uh, remaining in keeping with the, the story that we have going on here by wearing your Hammer pants. You bet. I wear them every Thursday. It's anytime, my Thursday wardrobe. Anytime I'm going out of an airplane and my parachute does not deploy, Hammer I'm time. hanging on to you. That's right. And uh, again, the, the planet is Bean Oo, not to be confused with Bean O, <laughs> which is uh, the the medicine you take if you have um, Notice, reactions yeah. to beans. You didn't say Bean Oo. You said Bean Oo. Yes. Bean E-W. Oo. Hey, up next, we're going to be talking about uh, how rest, rest, stopping working and resting actually drives you to be a more successful person. In fact, the most successful people make room for rest. We'll be talking about it straight ahead on the Matt Townsend Show. 
What if I told you that you get more done when you work less? Would you believe me? Well, our next guest uh, has, uh, has done a lot of research on it. Dr. Alex Pang, who's the author of many books, including the bestseller, Rest, Why You Get More Done When You Work Less, and a new article that he published, uh, The Most Successful People Make Room for Rest. And he's here today to talk with us about um, how overworking ourselves to meet deadlines, uh, it wears us out, and it actually doesn't necessarily mean we're more likely to, to meet the deadlines. Dr. Alex Pang, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. You bet. So how does resting, taking a break, getting, taking a rest, actually help us get more done? Well, um, <clears throat> it's useful in a couple ways. I mean, it's sort of, first of all, there is the simple physical fact that, you know, or of minds need rest just in the same way that bodies need food. And I think that, or if, uh, that trying, to, or if, uh, trying to push ourselves past the point where we're able to operate effectively actually turns out to be counterproductive. The second thing is that when you look at the lives of really creative people, you know, artists or Nobel Prize winners or famous, you know, famous novelists, one of the striking things you find is that they actually often labor far fewer hours than you would think you would need in order to write great expectations or make mm. great discoveries. But what they do is they work very intensively for periods of you know, several hours, maybe four or five hours, and then they also then rest in very consistent kinds of ways, ways that it turns out help them be more creative, to see new insights, to turn over ideas, so that the next time they go back to work, um, they've got sort of more interesting ideas to kind of pick up on and to, and to push forward. Oh, that's, that's great news, <laughs> because I've always, th- <laughs> I've always thought that's kind of how I work. Um, it, it's almost more in fits than it is, you know, this constant stream of, of work. But part of it, too, I think, is just we need to think, don't we? We need time to think. Absolutely. And, you know, I think one of the things that we often underestimate is how valuable those periods where we're apparently doing nothing, where we've worked hard, we've turned over a problem, um, and we've maybe hit a wall. And, you know, taking a, taking a period and, let's say, going for a walk or sort of doing something else that's, uh, that is diverting and low intensity can give our subconscious minds, our kind of creative minds, a chance to turn over those problems, to examine them maybe from a new angle, and to come up with an, you know, to come up with an answer that would, you know, that often eludes our conscious effort. It's a kind of, you know, more productive version of that experience that we all have of trying to remember, you know, who was the name of that actor who was in that movie and yeah. that TV show. Right, and you can't remember it. Right. And then a few minutes later, when you're in the car or doing something else, the name <laughs> pops into your head. Owen Wilson. We just exactly. shouted out. You know, and yeah. you know, it turns out that that same set of cognitive processes is what's behind or of you know, discoveries like, um, you know, or of Newton's Newton's recognition that you know, or of mechanical forces and gravity actually operate in the same way. Hmm. Um, so, you know, that kind of time turns out to be um, time that we can spend very, very well, very well. Does it matter what your job is? Um, uh, it seems like, you know, if you're, if you're a creative type, this actually makes a lot of sense. Um, mm-hmm. But is it, is it the same if you're a mechanic? 
Actually, yes, because, um, you know, work, there's a, there, are, there are lots of kinds of work that we think of as being less creative, but actually still require an awful lot of creativity. Right. Um, there's, a, you know, there's, a, there's actually a wonderful book called, Soul, called Shop Craft about, sort of, uh, about motorcycle repair, where they mm. talk about right, how I actually, see, yeah. you know, sort of, there's an incredibly, that's incredibly complicated stuff. And we often underestimate just how creative even what look like relatively simple tasks uh, or of, uh, turn out to be. And so I think that this is something that recognizing the value of rest is something that is good for, uh, order for everybody. But even if you're in a field where, you know, where the main challenge is simply um, you know, maintaining like a high level of intensity through the course of a day, Rest is still very valuable for restoring the energy, mental and physical, that you spend during work and making it possible for you to you know, come back the next day and to do the kind of job that you want to do. Yeah. You, um, you made a great argument in your, your article uh, about um, uh, the one that we just recently talked about, the most successful people make room for rest. Mm-hmm. I, I, in there, you talk about the fact that so many business executives, so many historic, uh, you know, iconic business leaders, even you know, from Teddy Roosevelt as a president uh, to Carnegie to all of to Forbes to all of these other people, they made it a, a major point to make sure that they were getting out to nature and actually resting. Right. You know, and I think there was you know they reflected this older ideal that recognized that, you know, that rest was important, that rest was a kind of reward for hard work, you know, that you didn't need to feel guilty about so long as you did the work first, um, you know, but also that rest had value, you know, that it was in those periods that you, you gave yourself an opportunity not just to think about you know, new ideas for your business or to solve problems, but also to reflect on the quality of your life, you know, to make sure that you, you know, or have had a perspective on what really mattered and what really mattered for you to do next. So you know, I think that the, you know, and the fact that they were able to do this and have good lives and be fabulously successful mm. um, should you know, serve as a uh, sort of, uh, serves serves as a great reminder for us that you know that uh, that constant overwork and an assumption that we need to you know dissolve the boundaries between you know work and life um, isn't necessarily sort of the you know the the kind of um, magic road or the only road to success. Do you? I know you've done a lot of uh, also work in just what happens to the physiology and the brain and everything. Mm-hmm. What is going on while we're resting that's not happening while we're working? Right. Well, um, you know, when you kind of relax your mind and seem to kind of zone out, you think that your brain is kind of shutting off. But it turns out that what happens is that it's every bit as busy as it is when you are you know, or uh, dealing with traffic or, or you know, or, or trying to solve math problems. It's just different parts of the brain are active. And this is what um, neuroscientists call the default mode network. And one of the characteristics of the default mode network is that it seems to connect together parts of the brain that are used when we are engaged in creative activity. And so when you let the mind just do its own thing, it tends to kind of want to wander back to problems that we've been working on. 
And so this, it turns out, is uh, sort of is the mechanism that underlies that sort uh, of the phenomenon of having you know aha moments or unexpected insights, and that's why for creative people, taking the time, especially after you've been working hard on a problem, to just let your mind relax for a few minutes and sort of to you know to gi- to give your subconscious a chance to switch on the default mode network and to let it to do its thing turns out to be actually um, a, sort of a, a useful and, if you practice it, reliable way of getting insights and solving problems. Oh, yeah. It, where I do it every day where I, I, I actually, though, you know, introduce the problem or like I need to write an article and I'll, I will introduce the idea to my brain and then I, I, I just research some stuff, but I let my subconscious or whatever it is work it. And, exactly. it, and it works it. And then when I go sit down to write it, I'm, there, I'm ready. Right. You know, this is – and, you know, it's, it often sounds something that's kind of, you know, mis, uh, sort of mysterious or mystical. But yeah. actually, you know, lots of writers have this, pr- have this practice of stopping for the day in mid-sentence because they find that the next morning when they start up – um, it's easy. It's you know. It's easier, first of all, to complete a sentence than it is to you know face the existential terror of a <laughs> blank page. Yeah. But psychologists have also found that if you know that you're going to be coming back to a problem later and trying to uh, and working on it, your subconscious actually will continue processing it even as you go off and do other things. And that's a practice that it turns out you can learn and you can get better at. Just at you know, it's it's no different from you know learning to drive or learning you know learning another language. It's just you know sort of it's a lot of repetition and practice, but you do actually get better at that. Mm. You you have a term you call deep play. Mm-hmm. What what is that, and how does that work into all of this? Well, it turns out that. Um, some, uh, that lots of really you know, ambitious, competitive people have time-consuming, expensive, sometimes dangerous hobbies. You know, things like mountain climbing yeah. or you know, solo, you know, sort of, um, solo sailing. And so why is it that people who otherwise are very you know, conscious of their time invest in these things? What do they get out of it? And it turns out that for them... Um, these sort of these kinds of serious hobbies, what I sort of what I call in the book deep play, are valuable because they offer many of the same sort of psychological rewards as their work when it's going really well, um, in a very different kind of context, often you know physically much more demanding, um, and in a very different kind of time scale. So scientists, for example, talk about rock climbing as being like science because you've got this. You know, you've got this big problem. You know, get to the top of the get to the top of the rock that you break down into a lot of little parts. You attack them one by one. It requires a lot of concentration. But unlike experiments, where you're never a hundred percent sure that you're going to, you know, you're going to get the answer you think is right. Mm. At the end of the climb, you've either made it to the top or you haven't. And that turns out to be a really rewarding thing for people who are working in very complex kinds of jobs, who are doing things that are very cognitively demanding. And I think that the other, you know, the other reason it's valuable is that um, you know, 
very often people who are really devoted to their work or who are really ambitious need something that is just as engaging as their work to get them out of the office, right? Yeah. Sort of to, you know, to, to give, uh, in order to give yourself permission to go off and do something else, you need something that kind of feels as rewarding as, you know, sort of as your job. And so deep play serves that purpose in a way that um, often more casual kinds of uh, kinds of hobbies or lower intensity kinds of leisure um, turn out not to. Hmm. It's so it really is. It's fascinating to see kind of some of this coming together. Again, we're speaking with Dr. Alex Pang, who is the founder of the Restful Company and a visiting scholar at Stanford University. He's also the author of two books. Rest, Why You Get More Done When You Work Less, and The Distraction Addiction. Um, Dr. Peng, talk to us about – it sounds like the rest – it's interesting because rest seems almost the opposite of exercise, except um, really it almost seems like physical exercise is part of the component of rest. Yeah, you know, one of the things that surprised me most when I was writing the book was how many of the people I talk about, how many of the people who are of, uh, who, who practice uh, practice these kinds of rest are actually really serious athletes, and partly that reflects the fact that you know, that uh, that um, cognitive work is actually physically very challenging. You know, your brain, when it's operating at full intensity, is you know, is consuming energy like a marathon runner, and sort of literally. And so, being in better shape means that you can, you know, you can you can provide food and oxygen to your sort of to your brain in the quantities that it needs. But it also turns out that the best kinds of rest, the ones that are most mentally restorative and or physically and physically restorative, are actually active rather than passive. You know, we often mm. think of rest as sitting on a couch with a remote in one hand and, you know, a bag of snacks in the other. And that has its place, but it's, but it's more often the case that, you know, the way to get over a stressful day at work or to, you know, prepare for a challenging week is not to, you know, just kick back, but actually, you know, to go for a run, to go to the gym, to do something that is going to be, um, you know, uh, that's uh, physically challenging, but also maybe psychologically engaging as well. That takes your mind off work, but also sort of uh, gives you the energy that you need to face the next day. Yeah, it's yeah, it's counterintuitive, but yet it would induce this state of well-being. Yeah. Talk about the um, you know as as we're trying to figure this out in our own lives. And, you know, we're still trying to maybe push back on our our bosses or our business structure that that still buy into the old model that it's not as beneficial for people to rest. What would you say we should do um, just as individuals to, to start? Where do we begin to get more rest in our lives? Well, I think the first thing you've got to do is, you know, is take rest seriously. You know, recognize that it actually has value and it's something worth investing in. So, you know, first off, don't feel guilty about it, but also don't assume that you're going to be able to rest once you've gotten everything done, because, everything else done. Because, you know, these days we're never, you know, we never get to the bottom of our to-do lists. Um, I mean, I think that the, that, uh, that, uh, the next thing is that 
if you're in work that is you know, that is cognitively challenging or sort of highly creative, that figuring out that it, this pattern of alternating periods of intensive work and dedicated deliberate rest is a really valuable thing. Mm-hmm. You'll be able to get more done over the course of a day if you work that way than if you, you know, try and maintain like a steady pace for you know, eight or nine hours. For people who are in jobs that, where the big challenge is maintaining, you know, a, maintaining a level of focus and intensity over the course of a day or that have more kind of psychological challenges to them. If you're in you know, medicine or law enforcement or, or, or retail, those people often have to push rest to evenings and to weekends. But the people who are really good at it, who have the, the longest, most prosperous careers, are the ones who take it really seriously. You know, for, for them, um, rest is sacred. You know, this often, I mean, for plenty of people, that gets expressed in terms of, you know, of observing a Sabbath. But for others, it's about not answering the phone on the weekends, you know, sort of putting the work away, not looking at email, and filling your time with other things that are going to be um, equally challenging, that are going to be restorative as opposed to merely passive. And I think that sort of between those two sets of practices, the daily ones and the ones that involve nights and weekends and the preservation of your own private time for rest, you end, sort of, you can craft a life that is um, both sort of more creative and productive at the daily level, but also more fulfilling and longer lasting. Mm. Lots of the people I write about in the book, you know, sort of do their, are active into their 80s or their 90s. So there seems to be something about this that not only you know, jumpstarts your, jump starts your, sort of, uh, your professional career, but also uh, helps you have a longer career. Yeah. If I asked you the one thing, Alex, that would make the biggest difference, uh, what's one thing I could do tomorrow or today um, that would just immediately start to create benefit? You know, probably the uh, – I, I, will, I will go out on a limb and, and say that um, the, mo- the thing most of us can do that is uh, uh, beneficial is um, – Go for a walk in the middle of the day. You know, it doesn't even have to be very long. It can be, you know, 10 or 15 minutes. But the combination of, you know, of light exercise and sort of mental diversion and just being in a slightly, you know, being in, being in a different place, even if you're just walking around, yeah. you know, on, uh, sort of inside your own building, um, can, be, can provide a psychological charge and a mental charge, particularly at that time of the day after lunch when you're starting to, you know, <laughs> get a little sleepy, you're starting to look forward to the end of the day. So, you know, I think that, uh, you know, that walking turns out to be something that is um, both physically good for us, but also psychologically and creatively beneficial. I oh, love that idea. Love it. Good stuff. Um, and we appreciate the interview, Alex. Thank you for your time. Man, nobody loves a, a walk more than me. I tell you, it's raining today, though. Come on. Hey, uh, up next, we're going to continue this journey. That, by the way, was Alex Pang, who's the founder of Restful Company. The book is, is titled Rest, Why You Get More Done When You Work Less. Uh, and uh, take a walk once in a while. Up next, we'll continue the journey. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. 
Welcome back, everybody. Hey, Jeffrey, are you a golfer? I have golfed twice. Okay, so in my entire life, so and you I've done surprise golfer. The people that have known that I've o- have only golfed twice have been quite impressed with my skills. Oh, is that what they told you? Yeah, I don't know if that was just to make me feel yeah, better. They were playing, yeah. and once was in front of my boss, so uh, that was, wasn't nerve wracking. Was money being exchanged? No, no. Yeah. Okay, so there is a there's a, a really interesting story um, about the the what is now known as the world's longest golf course. Really? Actually, no, no, no. It's not even a course. It's a hole. One hole. Eighty days. To complete the hole. What? 14,000 par. You're kidding. No. 1,200 miles. Wow. And people actually do it. Happy Gilmore could probably do it in like 5,000 par. No. Really? It's a lot of travel. Okay. It's 1,200 miles. Oh it is 2,023,000 yards. Okay, so this begs uh, – so why? Well, it's sport. It's golf. Mm. And so we will be posting a video of somebody who um, who who made it happen. But it you 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 really just keep going sounds and like, going sounds and going. Sounds less like golf or sport and more like a good way to burn vacation days. Yeah, yeah. Well, you pretty much would have to be unemployed to do this. Yeah. Or, or, the <clears throat> or, yeah. Yeah, or the president, or working as the president <laughs> of the United States to get this much golf in. But um, it really, you go through swamps, you go through. It's in. By the way, you start, you tee off in Western Mongolia. Yeah, and then the you have a mapped route that goes through swamps, rivers, deserts, and the key is if you could actually do it in just with one ball, that would be fantastic. But you probably go through hundreds of balls trying to. You know. I thought you have to play it where it lies. Well, yeah, but you got to find it. So bring your scuba deer or scuba scuba gear. Yeah, if you have a swimming deer that can do scuba, <laughs> bring it, bring it. But then you have that. You also have to pull a cart, right? Because you have to you have to have your gear with you because you're, you're going to have to sleep for eighty nights. This isn't a fast hole. This sounds like the worst, just the worst. Well, it depends how you look at it. I look at it as, boy, that would kind of be restful, hmm. right? Compared to like driving and having to work, this is just walking. And at that point, why don't you just rent an RV and spend the three months with your family on the road? That would be fun. Yeah, once you do the dog leg through Afghanistan, as Terry brought up, hmm. it, it's a whole different game. And, okay. and by the way, I would bring a semi-automatic weapon for that hole, that so, part of the hole. I've got something that's even better. Oh, you're trying to one-up that. Yeah. It's a, it's another record. Okay. It's not a golf course, but apparently there's a guy in Japan who set a new Guinness World Record for successfully spinning the the biggest... The dreidel? No, no. Okay. For successfully spinning the biggest hula hoop ever created. Or ever known to man. Okay, now notice. I went to a sport and you went to hula hoop. This is a sport. Is it? 16 feet, 10 inches. It's an aluminum hoop. So this guy basically had to, once he got it going, and he had to get it going for quite a while, and then he had to run in place 
to get it to keep going. And it's so heavy that he was he wow. could only do about you know six or seven rotations. You should really look it up. It's, it's quite impressive. It's, it's a huge. Hula yes, hoop. it's a huge hoop. Yes, and I mean he uh, it was it's pretty impressive. I watched it. I read it first, but I wasn't as impressed until I watched the video. This guy is amazing. He's known as Hoopman Yuya. Hoopman. Hoopman. Hoop hoop. And uh, he's quite a character. Well, you need to look it up. That I'm watching is, it. I'm watching it. That's and, so much better because it only takes a fraction of the time to, as it as the golf course would take. Yeah, but the funny thing about the video that I'm watching is it actually looks like he's like a trapped beaver in a beaver trap. <laughs> he does look very <laughs> exhausted after the six or seven rotations. Yeah. Uh, I'm yeah. going to go with the golf. Come on. I mean, I, don't get me wrong. I love a huge hula hoop. Oh, come on. Sorry. Anyway, see, folks, giving you the the options to find rest. You can either go on a 14,000 par golf hole in Mongolia, or you get a hula hoop that just beats the crud out of you. Do the hula hoop. You'll be gone for like 30 seconds versus 90 days, it, and you won't have to call in sick or take any vacation leave. Yeah, it really looks like he's just fallen through a trampoline and he can't get out. <laughs> That's what it looks like. We'll continue the journey up next. We're going to be talking more about the pity party, how to not just become a person that loves self-pity. Interesting stuff straight ahead. Hey, folks, welcome back to the show. Uh, you know, we've been talking about getting past self-pity, and we've been revisiting a, an interview I did a few months ago with Amy Morin, who's a licensed clinical social worker, a psychotherapist, and a, a, a college psychology instructor. She also wrote an article um, that uh, where she said, Mental, mentally strong people reserve their resources for productive activities instead of self-pity. We don't need to have the pity party, she's teaching us. I asked her in the interview uh, what she meant by that. Uh, you know, I've never met anybody who says I sat on the couch for four days and <laughs> didn't get dressed and didn't shower, but then I felt much better by day five. I don't know what <laughs> it know? was, but I had really, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. I, I ate cereal for six like weeks. And so to figure out, okay, what's the best use of my time and my energy? You only have so much time and you only have so much energy. And the, the more time that you spend wallowing is the less time that you have to try to improve your situation. And so rather than staying stuck, focused on the problem, to be able to say, well, what, do I, what can I do that's productive? How do I look towards a solution to try to make things a little bit better? That's great. I mean, really, if you've got, you know, certain only a certain amount of energy and resources anyway, spend them wisely. Don't just exactly. don't just double down on the pity party. You right. also talk about practicing gratitude. How do, how do you yeah. do that? I mean, I I always hear that, and that's a great idea. Get a gratitude journal. That's great, but I it's hard to do. You know, when you're downing donuts and you're and you're watching your fourteenth season of a your favorite Netflix binge. Right, and so you know sometimes you have to be um, very purposeful in your attempt to look for what what do I have to be grateful today and it doesn't have to be big things it can be you know I saw the sunshine today or gee I can turn on my faucet and I have clean water that comes out of it that's yeah. pretty amazing 
or clean air to breathe, whatever it might be, but to be able to just say, okay, what's three things today I can be grateful for? And it might just be things that you normally take for granted, or maybe it's a kind word somebody said to you, whatever it might be, but just to acknowledge those things. And while some people say, yeah, I keep a gratitude journal, journaling's not for everybody. Some people have a bulletin board, or they put it, write it down and put it in a jar. Other people just make a mental note of it, or they talk about it to somebody else. Whatever it might be, just to make that a habit in your life, because gratitude's really the antidote for self-pity. You can't feel both self-pity and gratitude at the same time. No, I love that. And it gives you something to do again. I mean, if you're focusing your eyes and your mind on uh, on the good stuff of life, it's hard to, I mean, sometimes that's just why a baby or, um, you know, your favorite television show could kind of get you out of a funk just because it makes your mind go somewhere healthier. Right. And sometimes that's it. You just need to have that distraction, something to take you off dwelling and ruminating on how horrible your life is. That's it, too, I guess, is one of the keys uh, you talk about is you, you almost have to get out of yourself and serve other people. Otherwise, the pity might keep you in the party. Uh, you, you suggest we help or serve others. Yeah, I'm yet to meet anybody who goes and serves a meal at a soup kitchen and then says, boy, you know, I feel really sorry for myself. Yeah. <laughs> if you had the wherewithal to get yourself there and you can and you can serve others, it usually helps you switch your focus to know, okay, I have something to contribute to the rest of the world. Even though my circumstances are bad, it doesn't mean I'm useless or worthless. I can still give to other people. And then just having that reason to get up and get out of bed every day can can make a huge difference. Yeah, just the service. I guess it's... Um... It's such a natural fix, isn't it? If it's kind of, I either need to point my arrows in or my arrows out, and arrows in seems like eventually it's going to be pretty self-destructive. Um, I need to go yeah. out and, and help others, like Cupid kind of does. You also suggest that healthier people refuse to complain about it. Uh, what do you mean by that? And why does it matter if I do complain about it? You know, a lot of people seem to have this notion that venting is really helpful. So if I call everybody I know and tell them how bad my life is, I'll feel better. But when you take a step back and you think about it, like, why would you feel better? The more you talk about something, the more you're thinking about it, and the more it gets your, all your feelings get fueled by talking about it. And it's usually not helpful. If you go to somebody for genuine advice, a trusted friend, that's one thing. But when you're just complaining and you want people to know how bad your life is, it's not helpful for a few reasons. You know, first of all, self-pity is not a particularly attractive characteristic. Most people don't choose their friends based on who feels sorry for themselves. And also, you know, there's not a contest. Sometimes people seem to think, if I can tell you how horrible my life is, it's like there's a prize. Yeah. Really, there isn't any. You don't win anything for having the worst stuff to deal with. Yeah. If you win a pity party, I mean, and then I guess you're just the bigger loser. Great. Okay. <laughs> right. Yeah. There's nothing good that comes out of winning it. So. <laughs> it's true. It's And there's something, too, about saying it that makes it seem more real. Right. So the minute I'm arguing for all of my messed up traits, they just become more real. Right. Mm. Man, we're pathetic. <laughs> aren't we amy we just keep we just do it kind of naturally i guess because it maybe there's a little catharsis that we benefit from by doing it but in the end we kind of solidify bigger problems for ourselves right and you know there's benefit in being heard i'll have a lot of people that come into my therapy office and they say yeah i want to change my life but 
by about week four, it becomes clear they just want to come in every week and tell me all the bad things that happened to them in the past seven days. While it can be helpful to know that somebody is genuinely listening to you, on the other hand, if you're not going to then do anything about it, talking about it alone isn't going to solve your problems or change your life. It's funny, but it's good for business, isn't it, Amy? It just, they just keep coming. Right. It's, and it's sad because you want to help them and, you know, turn their feelings into action. The last thing um, that you just suggest is we maintain a, an optimistic outlook and we go actively go build our mental strength. We've got about a minute left. Talk to us just about the about that. Why Why is the mental side of this so important to us? You know, because, again, if you have a pessimistic outlook on everything, it really influences how you behave. You won't go out and, and make your life into the sort of life that you want to live. If you, you'll you be self-defeated before you even walk out the door. So if you want to be stronger, you have to do two things. The first one is you have to develop healthy habits. But then the other thing is you also have to give up those bad habits like self-pity that drag you down and hold you back. Absolutely. And that, again, was uh, Amy Morin, who is a psychologist, a licensed clinical social worker, psychotherapist, Uh, teaching us about the importance of watching out for the pity party. It's too easy in our lives to just fall into that void where you uh, everything's bad, everything's sad, your life is horrible, and you're a victim of everything. Again, it doesn't mean there aren't real victims, and it doesn't mean there aren't real times where you should be down. The problem is being down and acting down and thinking down just keeps you down. And at some point, we as humans need to, to probably reach a little deeper and, and find another way out. Eckhart Tolle has a great quote that t- says, Discontent, blaming, complaining, self and self-pity cannot serve as a foundation for a good future, no matter how much effort you make. You're not going to whine, blame, complain, or self-pity yourself out of a, out of a problem. It's just – it's not the way out. It's actually the way in deeper. If you remember, we've talked on the show about so many other things like rumination. That's kind of the the negative thinking that we do when we've been hurt or harmed. It just drives us into more um, uh, negative thought. Remember, thought leads to feelings. Feelings leads to behavior and action, and action leads to what you're becoming. So if you keep fostering it in self-pity or in complaining or in blaming others – to me, you're just in a mind trap, and that mind trap will eventually lead you to more negative life, more negative behavior, more negative everything. Just, you know, my take on it. Who knows? But uh, doing what we can to end the pity parties of the world. We will continue the journey, folks. Remember, the goal is to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier, happier lives. This is The Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to uh, the program. Dr. Matt here. It's Thursday, and Jeff, Terry, and I, we've been gathering data all night long. And we are ready to edumacate and uplift your life. There were like five mistakes you just made. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We have got a lot to cover, including um, the digging out of the fourth nor'easter of the year. It's, again, we in the Rocky Mountain world, we are coveting your snow, and we shouldn't. But 
We wish we had it. And if you'd like to ship it our way, Which we could use it. We've had plenty of stories on the show in the past where people have snow shipping businesses. Yeah. Snow Do you remember? Shipp- snow shippers. Yeah. They shift in the fall to shipping leaves. And yeah. then in winter, they ship snow. Because uh-huh. there's places Summer, around- they ship sand. <laughs> I don't know. No, they're in Boston, so they don't send sand. Yeah, they need their sand. Yeah. Keep your sand. Keep your filthy sand. So uh, we feel bad for you. And um, really, the reason we're talking so much about the Nor'easter is because there's other news in Washington, D.C. that I don't want to talk about. <laughs> it's just it's it's exhausting. Uh, Trump's got some personal legal issues that are happening with uh, past relationships. That's about all I'll say about that. Thank we, you. We also got Joe Biden calling out the president ready for a fight. Now, did Apparently. he call him out again? Because he called him out a while ago saying that he Apparently could take— Apparently there were two talks. Okay. One was the I'd take him behind— A gym or a something gym, in high school. And then and... He, he did another one just saying that—or maybe it was the same one, but he's— Them's he, fighting words. Yeah, oh, no. He was calling the president out, and then the president called him out saying wow. he's not mentally well or physically well. So do you think he's gearing up for something, Joe Biden? I just think he was— Thought he was off the record talking to some people, and all of a sudden it got a little squirrely, hmm. which it happens, you know. And then you're like drop into your high school bravado where you're bringing up high school days, even though high school days were about seventy years earlier <laughs> or sixty five years earlier. Anyway, we all do that, of course. I mean, we all do that. So um, anyway, uh, that's all going on. But let's let let's let the one that loves reading all about this, studying it, and and just diving into it deeply. Let's let Terry handle this. Terry, what should we be focused on? The U.S. House of Representatives is currently voting on a rule to allow the vote for the one trillion dollar spending bill that needs to be passed by Friday night. That's what's happening right oh, now. Oh, okay. It's really boring. It's there, a vote for a vote. A vote to vote. Sounds- In this bill, there is no payment for the wall. There is no fix for Obamacare. Uh, there is no agreement on the DACA situation. Um, but it's $1.3 trillion. It funds the government. It funds the military. It gets some other uh, issues. Basically, both sides are not necessarily happy with it, which means it might be a good deal. Yeah. But we don't know because there's 2,300 pages. They just got it yet last night, and they have to vote on it by Friday. So no oh, one's going to read boy. this. Yeah. Government. Government. That's how it works. Man believed to be behind the series of package bombings in Austin used what's being termed as exotic batteries ordered online, according to NBC News. The bomber reportedly used the unusual batteries and the explosives he sent out, which helped investigators track him down. According to one official, the bomber wasn't using your store-bought Duracells. The report came after he blew himself up Wednesday as police closed in on him. A total of six bombs across the Texas Capitol. His explosives killed two people, injured four others. So he was using batteries that weren't your normal type of battery, and because they were unique, that gave him enough to track him. See? There you go. You're going to get caught. By American. That's what they're trying to say. (laughs) Facebook founder and CEO Mark Zuckerberg told CNN on Wednesday that he's really sorry about a data breach that uh, affected the estimated 50 million Facebook users, acknowledging that the company has a basic responsibility to protect people's information. And if we can't do that, then we don't deserve to have the opportunity to serve people. Yeah. Do you, fa- do you feel that Facebook is serving you, or are you being no. served to oh, ask I, somebody else? I've been served by Facebook. Right. You've been right. served by uh, people that were uh, through official channels, too. 
Yeah. Zuckerberg said that anyone whose data may have been affected will be notified by Facebook, and the platform plans on building a tool that lets users see their information uh, if it's been compromised and if they're using any apps that are doing sketchy things, as he said. So they're, they're finally going to be on that. Yeah. Now, yeah. They got their billions. Now they're going to fix it. What they ought to do, if Facebook, if Facebook was really trying to service, maybe they ought to give us some money back. Ah, but yeah. no money traded hands. Then they call it Faceback. Yeah. <gasps> You're on to something. Thank you. In other news, as President Trump prepares to announce today his plans to impose at least $30 billion in tariffs against China, counter-tariffs are being drafted overseas to specifically hurt states that helped uh, the president win his 2016 election. This according to the Wall Street oh, Journal. Oh, boy. Focusing on the farm belt, China's tariffs could target America's soybean, sorghum, and live hog exports, with Chinese companies preparing to turn to Brazil Argentina and Poland to meet their supply needs. Hold it. Does that mean China is now trying to interfere with our elections? No, they're just targeting products that come from specific places in the country. Where there will be major electoral running and right. issues and against the president. Same thing the EU is doing. Ew. As they're going against the tariffs. Also, Trump's tariff push comes in response to complaints by American companies that say Chinese companies force them into partnerships in order to obtain their technology and that Chinese companies receive government money to steal tech secrets. Wow. I love me some sorghum. Sorghum. I add it to mm. most oh. of my food. Don't you love some mm-hmm. sour sorghum? Mm. Ooh. Over rice? Yeah. Num num. Only 7% of the nation's teachers want to carry guns in schools, according to a... What percent? Seven. New results of a Gallup poll released today. More than a third of teachers surveyed said they want tougher gun control legislation. 20% favor an assault, assault weapons ban, while 10% want background checks for potential gun owners. Last month, yeah, the shooting, yeah. led to this kind of a discussion, polling data. Maybe people don't necessarily want to be... Teachers, do they need to be human shields also? No. On but, top of educators? But no, but just think that That's through. kind of the question. But you heard about the 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 police officer, mm-hmm. the resource officer that was in the school that ended a shooting very quickly. He stopped by, it within a couple. He minutes. was a minute away, and he ran over a minute. So, if seven percent of the school teachers had guns, unless they're all in Texas, yeah, if we could spread those out throughout the country, they, they are a sort of steward for their students. Yeah, I mean, you don't need everyone to have a gun, but just somebody that's trained and, you know, smart and knows how to use it. So of the 7%, we'd have to see how many meet that criteria. Yeah. Not the story we had a while ago where a woman was in the restroom and shot the toilet. Yeah. You don't want to shoot it. What did the the toilet do to her? Exactly. Come on. (laughs) Uh, Finally, Monday night, severe storm did major damage at a Chevrolet dealership in Coleman, Alabama as baseball-sized hail severely damaged 380 new vehicles. Security camera video showed the large hail taking out car windows, exploding uh, as it hit the pavement. According to the owner, Sharon Smith, only three of four vehicles on the lot out of nearly 400 did not have any damage. Some of the most expensive vehicles, such as Corvettes, were stored in the company's service bays, but there were not room for many other vehicles. The hail started at 7.10 p.m., lasted 20 minutes, and messed up 380 brand-new vehicles. It says the company cannot sell any of the vehicles until after insurance appraisers make their assessment, but they are already getting calls about purchasing vehicles at a discounted price due to damage. Yeah, apparently a lot of people 
are okay with a bunch of divots on if your If you car. drive through the south, you'll see cars that just look like someone's taken a bunch of golf balls and thrown them at the car because of yeah. hail. But they, hey, they still run. It's just body damage, right? Yeah. What's the big deal? Just get a hood. And finally, the uh, company CandyStore.com that, that uses their data to tell us what our favorite candy is. Yes. They have told us what our favorite jelly bean is in, in uh, preparations for Easter. Watermelon. Oh. National uh, Jelly Bean Day, by the way, is April 22nd, so mark that on your calendars. Did you see how quickly he tried to get his vote in there? Last year it was black licorice. Duh. Really? Yeah. Oh, my wife has a cleanser that she sprays on everything that smells exactly like black licorice. (laughs) You were going to say taste. So the number one one jelly bean flavor that people either love or hate is... Well, cherry is a flavor, and it's popular in certain regions, and it, not the nation. Though. Some people hate it because it tastes like cold syrup. Yeah. Yeah. Buttered popcorn. <coughs> Whoa. <coughs> you okay, Terry? Terry's <coughs> losing it. <coughs> He's losing it. That is the worst of all of them. I'd rather eat the grass or the booger or the the vomit-flavored ones. Buttered where, popcorn, it's where horrible. Where are you getting your well, those are jelly all, beans? Those are all Jelly Belly flavors. But yeah, I haven't buttered, tasted one of those. Buttered popcorn is the worst flavor. I like can, it. Oh. What is your problem? Oh, I love buttered popcorn, which don't, is the strange don't thing. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you eat some weird jelly beans. No, I said I would rather. I've never tried those others, but I'd rather try those. Do those even exist? I'm sure they do. If not in real life, then in Harry Potter land, I'm sure. Yeah. I think you're thinking of something else. Oh, that's just got me kind of like I can't talk. Hey, up next, we're going to have our one of our great contributors, Jeanette Bennett, will be joining us. She's going to talk about uh, the status of women. She's been on a uh, to a commission on the status of women. Some interesting insights and updates. This is the Matt Townsend Show, doing what we can to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier lives. Welcome back, friends. Hey, it's time uh, to bring on one of our great contributors. Jeanette Bennett joins us. Uh, Jeanette is the founder and editor-in-chief of Bennett Communications, uh, where she is primarily focuses on, I don't know, being the greatest uh, human on earth. <laughs> wow. She speaks. She sings. She dances. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you dance. Okay. <laughs> Never seen you dance. Uh, she does it all. Oh, yeah. You were on Dancing with the... Uh, yeah. Community stars, yes. The community Let's stars. Let's lower the expectations. But um, <laughs> more importantly, she also is a is a publisher. Uh, if you go to her website, utahvalley360.com, you can see many of the different magazines that she publishes. But she has uh, this week done something, I think, really powerful and um, interesting. She went back to New York to attend the U.N. Commission on the Status of Women. That's right. Yeah, Talk about can... that, Jeanette. First okay. of all, welcome. Thank you. What, I'm fresh what? off the subway. Yeah, I, I thought I you... smelled something. <laughs> a little um, subway grime on me. So Doesn't nice. hurt anybody. No, I love the subway grime. It it's, really, you know, it's part of the New York it's experience. Part of, you've got to experience it. You just got to go down there. You got to smell the yeah. garbage as you just walk in. Feel and then, New York. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like you're in the inner belly of New York, right? And literally rub shoulders with strangers. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. Watch out for that. And nobody wants to talk to each other or mm-hmm. make eye contact. No. Yeah, that's the subway. That's you go yeah, get you hurt. Know, you know it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, Talk about what – so what What did you go there for? What is the, the UN Commission on the Status of okay, Women? Okay. So this is my fourth year going. Uh, the UN was started in 1945, right after World War II right. as a way to unite the world and hopefully avoid future conflicts. The Commission on the Status of Women was started uh, a few years after that. This was this year was the 62nd oh, wow. CSW, cool. we say for short. And um, the goal is that women come from around the world and discuss issues relevant to women and their economic and education and health health standards. So uh, that sounds benign. It ends up there's, there are a lot of controversial topics I that bet. show up there, as yeah. you can imagine. Uh, so I got involved about four years ago because I had written about someone who was going to be going, and she extended an invitation for me to join with this group and go. And I felt compelled to go. You know yeah. when your soul just yeah. says, I think that's for me? You need to go to this. So it was either my soul saying that or my FOMO, which yeah. I do have a case of that. I have, we all have a little fear yeah. of missing out. Uh-huh. I've, I've got a pretty decent case. But <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so I went four years ago, and it was fascinating to me. Yeah. So I've gone uh, four years in a row, and each trip has been very different. Last year, I took eight young women with me, and they did a presentation. Oh, did they? Really? Cool. And it was really neat uh, for them and for the people who got to experience their their goodness as young, awesome. as young women. And um, this year I went with a different purpose in mind. But anyway, the, the best part for me of being back there is meeting individual people. Yeah. You sit next to someone and uh, before the session starts, you're asking where you're from and what's your purpose for being here. And that's where I think you really connect and can make a difference. Uh, the UN is structured so that there are delegates and that's not what I am. A delegate has um, power to be part of the discussions where they form documents. Right. And the UN, the documents are not legally binding, but, they, but they're soft policy that end up trickling down into nations and cities and communities. Huh. Because they'll say as part of the UN document, this, this was approved, and so then other countries just follow suit. Right. And so the delegates are in there debating that. Um, the rest of us try to meet the delegates and influence them and tell them our experience and uh, and so, how do you know? Do they like? Do they carry a flag around? Like, <laughs> I'm a delegate. You can tell. You just know because you have oh. like a roster. <laughs> they wear a badge. Okay. That has the, the right designation on it, and um, mine does not say that. Yeah, so, yours you know, is like, like yeah. She's a nobody. Yeah. Don't talk to her. Yeah. Uh, so you can tell by their badge. Also, often by the way they're dressed, you can tell that they're taking this seriously. And then most of the rest of the people who get badges are there with NGOs. Non, yeah. non-government organizations that have a cause, um, and they're there to share that cause and to to build support for their own uh, beliefs. So when they're in the room de- uh, debating the documents, these people, the non-delegates, are sitting outside in support. You know, so as their delegates are coming in and out, they can say, "How's it going? Yeah. Remember, you know, remember the traditional." Uh, definition of the family. That's what we're here to support, and we're here to back you up. If you can vote for that, that'd be great. That kind of a thing. And so there's mind games going yeah. on. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. So when I'm there, uh, there are events inside the UN. Those are called side events that are in the large building, right. the large confusing building. <laughs> Honestly, they need a little help. Yeah, they need more signs. They need more signage. You go in there, and you're like, where's conference room 12? Oh, it's down there next to conference room E. Well, that makes no sense. What? Yeah. So anyway, there's events there. Then there's parallel events, which are 
across the street and in other buildings that are running parallel to the official event. Yeah. So you get um, you get your list of events for both side events and parallel events. And what I like to do is I like to go to events that are going to support what I believe because I want to support them. Yeah. Sometimes when you go to a pro-family event, there aren't very many people there. And, and Yeah, interesting. And, and Oh, it's interesting. So it's pro-family and no one showed up. Right. So you want to support them so, hey. Yeah. There's a can, smiling person in the audience. Yeah. You're and doing strength good. strength in numbers. Let's yes. get more people. Yes. You're not the only one who thinks that way. But then I also like to go to events that are opposite of what I yeah. believe because I like to, first of all, hear what they're saying and their logic. And then if I get a chance, ask a question or voice my concern yeah. about and, what and, they're and saying. And be a part of stirring the pot a bit. <laughs> I mean, in a healthy way. Like, in a healthy way, let's, yes. Let's get other sides in on this. Right. For example, so this was the first year I was there, but I was at an event, uh, an LGBTQ event, where they were – their main point – one of their main points was saying that we need to stop having um, doctors and hospitals identify gender at birth and, because that's – gender is to be defined and explored over time. So okay. that, and, and so I stood up and started my comment with, as a mother – there is great importance and logistical reasons. Yeah, that for, we need to know. Yes, there are medical reasons. There are some medical procedures that yeah. that are different. There are different uh, average baby weights and different uh, yeah. levels based on gender. So even our BMI eventually is eventually, based on male and female. Uh, I know. Yeah, well, men have BMI, it easier. Dang it! Yeah. Do you want to go there? No, it's not. Let's <laughs> not go there. Okay. So in that case, I stood and voiced that concern and. Um, do they People listen? booed me. Oh, they did. Yes, and then the panel defended their right, and they got cheered. You know, so there's there's some tense moments like wow. that. Wow! But interesting that you do this because this is voluntary. Totally voluntary. I pay my own way to go. Yeah. Yes, but it's interesting how many people feel compelled and drawn to go there, and then they end up supporting the cause in different ways. Uh, some of them make it their effort to go and visit the ambassadors and the embassies and share pamphlets and share statistics on uh, families and two-parent families and education right. and poverty. And uh, and that hasn't been totally my my experience. I like to just meet people one-on-one, gather their business cards, take a selfie, yeah. and then reach out to them afterwards and keep in touch. What other topics come up? What other issues are there that are of global significance for women? So the the biggest the biggest topic that comes up is gender. Yeah. Is gender identity. In fact, uh one of the things that drew me in the first year is I read a study that showed that women are mentioned 10 times more than men in UN documents. So it's really? it's very much focused on women. Yeah. And and they use terms like reproductive rights, which ends up being meaning abortion. Yeah. And so um it's really – if they're going to talk about women, I'd kind of like to be in the room. Yeah. You know? Well, and, and to have somebody that that might have uh, even more conservative ideas sometimes yes. or more – because it seems like the loudest voices would fill right. the room and then mm-hmm. all of a sudden you're creating legislation just by – Whoever's got the wildest idea. Right. And so there are a lot of loud voices there. So gender is the biggest one. And and it kind of takes two opposite uh, tones. One is gender doesn't really matter. We're all kind of the same. Yeah. And yeah. so let's just kind of – We're it's, all it's equal. A non-topic. It's all the same. Yeah. yeah. It's a non-topic. And the other one is gender is the most important identifying feature that you better list You know, every 
option of gender and you better respect it and know about it and tolerate it and all of that. So it takes two really different angles. Well, what's so interesting about it is, okay, so that's the biggest discussion going on in the UN meeting on the Commission of Women. Meanwhile, Boko Haram apparently returned 104 girls of the 110 they kidnapped. So it just seems like sex trafficking, Mm -hmm. abuse, mutilation, Mm -hmm. all these other issues that are huge and actually happening might be bigger issues. I think gender. so. I think so. And one of the things that I thought, there are some real, real challenges for women around the world. Yeah. I mean, here in the United States, sometimes I think we get hung up on little things, to right. be honest. Right. Nobody is attacking me physically. Yeah. Um, nobody's kidnapping me, trafficking me. Right. Um, I'm just... And I'm not really upset about any gender thing, but I think sometimes women here get upset about small things. We're not truly in physical danger, and there are women around the world who don't have access to feminine hygiene supplies, and they they get sold off um, as slaves or child brides. Right. We're not experiencing that. We still have a lot of agency here. I mean. 100% 100% no, we agency. No, really. we absolutely do. Yes. Again, we're speaking with Jeanette Bennett, uh, who's the founder and editor-in-chief at Bennett Communications. You, you can go to her, check out her website, utahvalley360.com. But she's talking about the UN Commission on the Status of Women, which was a commission she went to and uh, did everything she could to, to get involved and voice her concerns and, mm-hmm. and be a part of celebrating uh, other ideas. That th- So they're trying to basically formulate – Laws or not laws, but uh, documents, soft policy yeah. mm-hmm, that then other governments can look back on and say, okay, well, this is the global view. This yeah. is what the UN document says, and so it becomes hard policy in countries um, when they adopt language. It's from interesting the UN documents. because BYU has a database on women, uh, and I'm sure you've heard about it. Uh, that's the Marjorie Pay Hinckley Foundation has has put this database together, showing that. The most effective way to change a country would be focusing right. on the health of the women, mm-hmm. which is probably why the UN is is so focused on w- women. Right. But um, it, it, so it's powerful We're focusing and because the health, everything seems to circulate around women. It really, the really family, does matter. the health, mm-hmm. politics, everything mm-hmm. is going to somewhat circulate around it. So it's really true. That's where it's happening. So one of the philosophies that uh, is prevalent back there that I disagree with and have different experiences on is they feel that for women to be truly empowered and have and be equal to men, equal in opportunity and equal in every way, is they feel that marriage and motherhood make you unequal and hold you back. Yeah, restrictive Rest- kind of a patriarchal yep. idea. Exactly. So when I say, "Oh, I have 5 kids and I own a business and I'm happy yeah. and life didn't end when I yeah. had children in fact and they've you're married. En- they've enhanced I'm married and that that being a mom has enhanced my opportunities not taken them away it's really a unique idea to them they haven't heard that because they they're of this belief that uh, for men to be or women to be equal to men we've got to we've got to eliminate those barriers of you know yeah. stop holding ourselves back by by being tied to a man and tied to children. Interesting. And so the abortion topic is is really huge. In fact, one of the sessions that I went to, it was about ending violence against women. Well, that sounds like something everyone agrees Who with. Who doesn't want that? <laughs> That's a great idea. Right. Uh, but then one of their one of their main points was that not giving a woman access to abortion was torture. And so they were going through different types of torture women endure and one of them was not allowing her 
to have an abortion. And so then the, then the conversation gets exciting when people say, well, if you call that torture, aren't we diluting the meaning of the word torture? Yeah. Because there are right. other meanings of that word. So there's just a lot of interesting discussions. But uh, really what I found is at the heart of it, most people, almost without exception, really do want the world to be a better place. Right. And if they have children, they want their children to have a safe, happy world. And so people do believe that they're doing their part to make the world a better place, even if we disagree on some of the tactics to get there. Well, and it's interesting, too, this on the heels of the Me Too movement, hashtag Me Too. And in a way, it seems like there is progress being made. It's Mm -hmm. just it probably doesn't sound like it's fast enough to some, but then it's not extreme enough to others. So the right. idea would so you've got mm-hmm. to basically get rid of marriage. Yep. Obviously bad. Um, <laughs> and back. and uh, I guess ch- childbirth even mm-hmm. would be so restrictive. So let's do whatever we can to. I mean, do they not see that there are benefits to marriage, or there are benefits to being a mother oh, that are actually wonderful? And I think it's short-sighted to encourage yeah. women not to have children. I mean, do we want a species in a generation? Right. Well, that's right. <laughs> you know, so I think the solution is to strengthen mothers, strengthen families, not to— I mean, China's now recognizing that their one-baby law is has just backfired, and yes. now they don't have a future. They have these boys, bare branches, they're sometimes called, that don't have women to marry. And so they get in trouble, and yeah. they, they don't have a, a full successful life because the gender is imbalanced. And that is one of the forms of uh, violence against women, is aborting girl babies. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, yeah. Because they're less desired. And, Interesting. Yeah. So aborting girl babies as mm-hmm. less desired, bad, but aborting babies overall, not bad. Yes. See, now seems, you're seeing. Seems ironic. <laughs> you're seeing the irony yeah. in what we experience. But this back is the there. complexity, right, it's of, very of complex. all of these issues. And I mean, there has been such a history of kind of oppression on women that you can't negate it. And right. but the answers aren't to become oppressive. No. And I think the answers are yes, strengthen women, give us opportunities, celebrate who we are, educate, educate, maintain yes. health, but at the same time, elevate men. Yeah. Uh, not to put them down or to yeah. say women are better. We don't need men. We need men. Yeah. Men need women. Yeah. Oh, we need yeah. we need both for lots of reasons. Uh, but the answer is is not to put men down or to to say no to the patriarchy, which in some of its forms is wrong. Yeah. Right. But but we need to elevate both genders. And so I'm a fan of strengthening women. Give us access to education. Give us the health care that we need. Let us make choices. Let us be healthy. Mm. Let us be strong. And um, and let's let men be strong too. Yeah. What What do you do then? So now you come home mm-hmm. uh, back to Utah County. Right. And um, now what? So I have a few things that I do. I gather business cards and take pictures with, with people so I remember who they were. Yeah. And so then I reach back out to them, remind them who I, who I was and what our conversation was and keep a dialogue going. And these are treasured relationships then. And so interesting things have happened. For example, a couple of years ago, I sat next to a couple of women. We just said, hi, hi, that's it. Session starts. And uh, the one woman I can tell is irritated by what's happening. So I said, you know, you should go up there. Voice your opinion. And she did, and I took a picture. And when she sat back down, I said, look at this picture. I want to send it to you. So she gave me her email. I sent it to her. The lady on the other side also wanted to make a comment. She got up, took a picture. At the end, the three of us sat there. And we said, isn't that what women do? We encourage each other and celebrate mm. each other when we stand up. So we took a picture and, you know, traded uh, 
contact information. One of those women became the president of the National Council of Women two months later. Really? And so then I had this friend in a high position that I was able to connect with last year when I took the eight girls who went and visited her office. And so it's connections like that that over time, powerful. over time build and they influence me and I influence them. Next year, I'm planning to host an awards luncheon back there. This is my vision. I want to award a Youth of the Year, uh, Community Service Youth of the Year. I give about five awards to uh, young women How great. between 12 and 25. Because here's what I think. I don't think women need to march and protest. Let's just celebrate the good that's going yeah. on, and then more good will happen. And highlight more good. Yeah, because I think what gets acknowledged gets repeated. Right. So I want to acknowledge the good. Let's go for the positive. Right. Let's be for things, right. not against things. So that's kind of my, my future vision. Well, and we've had a lot of marches. We have. And I don't know that more good has come. Yeah. I mean, we wouldn't know because we don't celebrate it. So we ought to be celebrating the more good. That's that's what I think. I like that idea. So that's kind of my, my what do you, purpose What would my you goal. serve at your luncheon? That's really important, <laughs> too, because I'd go with Cordon Bleu. Okay. Done. <laughs> Thank you. Every that luncheon was, I've that ever was, been well, to. That's one decision less that I need to make. So. <laughs> Problem solved. Problem solved. That's pretty neat. So that's I'm proud of you. Good job. Thank you. Thank you. Jeanette, you're amazing. Oh, FOMO. You know, it'll get you yeah. every time. FOMO. <laughs> Who says it's bad? <laughs> Jeanette Bennett's her name. Go check out her website, utahvalley360.com, where you can find out more about Bennett Communications. She is the, the myth and the legend. Wow. Jeanette Bennett. My title keeps getting better. Yeah. Thank Huge. you. Huge. <laughs> we'll continue the journey. More fun straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Yes, it's time for more empty news on the Matt Townsend Show. Who better to uh, help us with that than Jeffrey Liam Simpson? I really wanted to play Flight of the Bumblebees for this, but I couldn't get it to work. Really? You'll, look, you'll understand here Well, we are losing bees. <laughs> you know how that goes. That's true. We talked about, and we talked about mechanical bees yesterday. Totally. Scary. Yeah. Scary. Um, so, San Francisco, you've been. Yeah, been there. Love it. How would you describe San Francisco to people that may not have been there before? Lots of hills. Okay. Uh, really quaint and uh, aggressive homeless people. Aggressive homeless people. Yeah. Okay. Would you say that San Francisco has a theft problem? I never saw that. Okay. Well, if you're driving in San Francisco, maybe you weren't when you were there, yeah. then you probably do know this. It's such a problem that uh, the government has been putting up these signs that say – so there, there are uh, three or four different things that it tells you to remember when you are leaving your car. Okay? The first one says lock your car. Yeah. Okay? That's good. It goes that's without great saying. That's great advice. Take your keys. Uh-huh. I don't know how you leave your keys, but somehow still people manage to do it, right? Right. Hide your belongings. This is sure. a big one because, you know, if you've got a purse – or if you don't want to bring your wallet in, if you have your laptop, sometimes you have your laptop in your car. Yeah, right. Hide it under the Hide seat, it. right? Hide it, yeah. Here's the fourth one. Yeah. Fill a decoy purse with thousands of angry, poisonous bees. Really? Yeah. I, I, that seems like a lot to write on just a little sign. It's all there. Is it Look really? it up right now. Yeah, it's actually it's it's very cute and quaint, and they've made it clean considering there's so much text. But yeah, so they San Francisco, city of San Francisco, is suggesting that you fill a fake, you know, a decoy purse with poisonous bees. It seems it, it seems, seems extreme, like a strange thing. And I mean, it, it begs the question: Well, 
how do I keep those poisonous bees from stinging me while I'm in the car driving? Right. And what if you grab the wrong purse? Well, yeah. Hey, son, just go Bad. get yeah. Go get your um. Go get your your adrenaline stick. It's what's it called? Your uh, your little stick. It's it's in it's in my purse. Yeah. Go get your EpiPen <laughs> in my purse. I don't know if this is a great idea because I think people might abuse this power. They might maybe they want to go into a bank. Yeah. No, it does. It says maybe they don't want to pay for their meal and they say, right. well, I don't I don't have any cash, but do you accept poisonous bees? And then they release them and they wow. get attacked. This is scary. It yeah. does say that. Hide your belongings and fill a decoy purse with thousands of angry poisonous bees. I think what they're really trying to do here is be take a, a really sad situation where people are losing all their valuables and try to take a lighthearted approach to it. Yeah, but it, like, maybe this people is... are taking it seriously now. <laughs> I hope not. That's... I think they're just trying – it's another way of, of them saying – Seriously, this is a problem. You need to follow all of these preceding suggestions that we've oh, provided you with. They have another one, too. You can scatter the scorched bones of your fallen enemies so criminals know that what happens uh, what, when they mess with you. Really? Yeah, that's another one. Maybe put up a sign that says uh, severe uh, E. coli, yeah. please do not enter. They, they also say you can tape a recent pay stub. To the door so that the thieves know that you're poor and have nothing of value. That's really? Sign. Or lie. This is another one. You can just lie in wait under a blanket in the back seat holding a crossbow and a grenade. Wouldn't it be great if we had some sort of a device on our car like Batman has on his car? Like when he goes out and he wants his car to be protected in the first one, he – he. Uh, there was some device that he pressed where there was a shield that that encased his car. Oh, yeah. What if we had some sort of a device that would just – it would make our car just like – we? it would look like the tires were flat. Oh, yeah. The wind, That's a great even idea. Even maybe like a hologram of some kind. Well, or just, you know, take a Prius or something that, you know, that maybe people wouldn't mess with. They wouldn't mess with a Prius? I mean, Those I, are nice. I drove a, P- I a know, Prius really, for two years. nice and expensive, but – you're obviously taking care of Mother Nature. No one's going to mess with that person. That person's a gift. The real sad that's thing zero, is... That's a zero-impact car. Nobody's considering the feelings of the bees. I know. Because if they sting you, they're dead. By the way, that's why we're losing bees. They're using them in San Francisco. I thought it was because of Honey Nut, honey nut Cheerios. No, no. Okay. None of that. Hey, straight ahead, we're going to be, be visiting with our good friends from BYU Sports Nation find out what's coming up on their show. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back. Appreciate Jeff on the uh, drums. Doing a little percussion for us as we now head down to our good friends at BYU Sports Nation, Spencer and Jerem. Hello, gentlemen. Now, this is a theme song that we can get on board with. Yeah. Climb aboard. It's time to start moseying downtown. Downtown? Downtown. Hey. I was hoping you'd go there. Hey, guys. Downtown? Guys, hello. Uh, Here's the deal. Guess what? The dill. Here is the dill. Um, you know uh, Jeanette Bennett. Yes, she was just Valley Magazine. Yeah, she was just on yeah. my show. Guess uh, I like Jeanette. Guess what? Guess what? You're not going to believe this. What? Her bracket, her NCAA bracket, is 188th in the nation. 
Wow. I know. That's incredible. In the nation. What are some of her big picks? Villanova is the final pick. Okay. Wow. And she's got a great. She's got a one seed. Survive. She's in the hundredth percentile. Okay. And uh, she generally good. Last week she was, by the way, up as high as like forty fifth or forty (laughs) eighth in the nation. Do you know her final four? Does she have all four left? I don't know. I didn't ask her. Matt. I I was kind of jealous. I was a little jealous. You know what I mean? Leave the emotion out of it, you robot. I know. I'm, I, should, I should have just gone all robotic. but I, I I would bet that she has the best-rated bracket in the entire state. Yeah. she's she's She could win a state uh, tournament here and maybe win a, a little Apple Watch or— Wow. Where is it submitted? Is it ESPN? Is yeah, it she's TV on ESPN. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. ESPN. Out of the— <laughs> How how many hundred and seventy million brackets yeah, or whatever? Yeah, that's incredible. She's, I mean, it's it, and, that's that's you know. accidental magic. Ho 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 ho! What do you mean? What do you mean by that? Accidental magic. To be good at a bracket does not require incredible skill. It requires incredible luck. Oh yes. wow! Yes. More oh, luck than skill. Yes. Wow! It's not like shooting a jumper. It's like oh, I think this team will win. I guess. No, there's there's a science in bracketology. No, get out of here. If there is, Matt, okay, yeah. I would love for you to explain. Go, it to go ahead, explain. Okay. Hold on. <laughs> go, you know what? Tell. I would, except I left my lo- my laser pointer in my office. Okay. You left it at that concert venue where you were the guy shining it in the light. That was me. Eyes of the drummer. You that got you. me. Who kept trying to shine it at the drummer? Me. <laughs> Do you remember that? There was just like this stretch where it was like there was always a laser pointer at the concert. Yeah. It's like, hey, come yeah. on. You're, they have to stop it. Uh, laser pointer, we will. You guys we'll kick you out of here. Seriously, do not blind the drummer. Dr. Matt Townsend. <laughs> Put your laser no, pointer you. down. Hey, here's, uh, here's another thing I've got to tell you guys about before we run out of time. Um, there is a golf, I don't know if you saw this, um, a 14,000 par golf hole. Excuse me? 14,000 par. It's one from one end of Madagascar to the other? One of Mongolia, basically. Um, but it, <laughs> it, is, it, it is 2 million yards long. It's 1,200 <laughs> miles, and it's 14,000 par. It takes 80 days to do the hole. <laughs> would you Would you participate? I'm wondering no. if you want to go with me. No. Where is this? And It's in Mongolia. Oh, it literally is in Mongolia. It's in Western Mongolia, yeah. The Mongolian uh, tourism oh, department was like, hey, yeah. we're going to get on American media with this. This is going to go gangbusters. And what kind worked. of terrain are we talking about? It's everything. About? You name it, it's in this their swamp. I think it takes you through Genghis Khan's life. Oh, it does. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. while you're doing it, you yeah. actually do reenactments where he was born, of Genghis Khan. Yeah. Here's where I killed a bunch of people. This is Wow. Yeah. Exactly. He's like the George wow. Washington of Mongolia, by the way. Oh, yeah. Highly revered. Apparently everybody is related to Genghis Khan because he mm. sired so many children. Mm. That's, and that's what I've heard. That's a good verb. Yeah. Sired. I don't Sired know. If, I don't know. I don't know if it's. A, I don't know if it actually works. But it's not um, a good verb. It's yeah. a unique verb. It's, no, it sounds so much more regal. Yes. Yes, it does. Thank yes. you. Yes. And by the way, that is a very regal sport. Golf. Yeah. If you're checking, <laughs> if you're looking for regal, regal sports. Hey, um, now you guys are doing a show. Uh, we always like to check in and find out what will be on your show today. On the program? I've given, I've given you two things. You could talk about Jeanette Bennett's bracket, or you could talk about the 14,000-par golf hole, or you could just talk about whatever else you want to talk about. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm going to take a hard pass on that. <laughs>
<laughs> okay, sorry, boss. That's <laughs> Don Sheila line. <laughs> yeah. I've got 92 reasons for all BYU football fans and every member of the BYU football team to get extra motivated for next season. Ooh, 92. Wow. Yes. Okay. Plus, we say goodbye to the St. Mary's trio of seniors whose season yes. is done and the it won't Utes. be remembered. Uh, why the Saints like Taysom Hill so much as a potential future quarterback? We'll talk to a Saints beat writer. Cool. Cool. Batcats game day. Roxy Bernstein. Should the should the NCAA tournament be the expectation for men's basketball or not? Yes. We'll discuss. All of that. All of that, Matt. All game of that. Day. By the way, I'm happy that you you said, I know you've got a show today. You didn't ask us. You you finally yeah. took the hint that we are going to do it. Yeah. I, I figured out finally. Unless is, this is recorded. Maybe this is recorded. Does the audience know this is not recorded? How no, do they, no, how they, do they know. know? They don't know. They don't know. We, we don't let them in on that. <laughs> audience of the Matt Townsend Show, sometimes it's recorded. Sometimes but it is recorded. this part is never recorded. Yeah. Dramatic squirrel. Take that. Spoiler alert. Thanks, guys, for you ruining it. <laughs> now they know. Well, gentlemen, you're the best. Knock them dead. I know now, just so you all know what they're doing now, that they are off of my show. They go, uh, usually they do push-ups, and they go get their body makeup done. Wrong. That's the problem with being on TV is you have to do body makeup every day. So that's why I like radio. I only do body makeup when I like to do body makeup. Hey, um, we've, we've talked about a lot today. And uh, if, you, if you happen to have missed any of it, shame on you. But you can always go download our BYU Radio app. You can go check us out on Apple Podcasts and Google Play or wherever you listen to podcasts. All you got to do is just look up the Matt Townsend Show. It's everywhere. And, uh, you know, that's why we're here. That's why we do this. But before we end, we always like to share a hero story so that you can get the good feeling of heroes in your life. A Port St. Lucie, Florida teen is being honored as a hero by the St. Lucie uh, County Fire District for saving his neighbor's life. Colin Alley, 14, was riding his dirt bike home on February 10th when he saw an overturned boat in the lake next to his home. Colin uh, recognized the boat as his neighbor's 10-foot sailboat. He didn't see anyone in the water. I look out and I see the boat flipped over in the middle of the lake, Colin said. He grabbed a styrofoam life preserver ring. Good thinking, and his uh, boogie board and swam out toward the capsized craft. When he got closer to the boat, Colin saw his 76-year-old neighbor, Cliff Boyle, hanging to the overturned boat. Boyle said that Colin saved him, uh, gave him the life preserver, then grabbed the capsized sailboat's he- uh, he- uh, lead line and started towing it to shore. He kept on swimming, and I was kicking. But I have to tell you, at 76 years old, there's not a lot of kick left. I can tell you that for sure, Boyle said. And it didn't come long uh, after that. He said, I, if he hadn't come along, I, uh, I wouldn't have made it. I wouldn't be a great-grandfather anymore. I think he really saved my life. I truly believe that. So that, my friends, is the hero of the day. One teenager that just saw something that he knew he could do something about went out and ended up saving uh, a man 60 years his senior. He said, if I would consider him a hero every day, and if I had any hero in my life, it had to be Colin. So that's a pretty cool story. Great job, Colin. And that's the show for us, folks. Doing what we can to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead a healthier, happier life. But stick with BYU Broadcasting because BYU Sports Nation is up next. Next.